0: Was the word and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You are listening to Outer Brightness, a podcast for post-Mormons who are drawn by God to walk with Jesus rather than turn away. Outer Brightness, Outer Brightness, Outer Brightness, Outer Brightness. There's no weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth here, except when Michael's hangry, that is, hangry, that is, hangry, that is.
1: Welcome to this episode of the Outer Brightness podcast. We were all born and raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah, more commonly referred to as the Mormon faith. We may use nicknames or abbreviations of the church, such as LDS, Mormon, etc., but not in an attempt to be pejorative or insulting, but as a reflection of our personal experiences as Latter-day Saints, where these terms were used interchangeably in reference to ourselves and or the Church. All of us have left that religion and have been drawn to faith in Jesus Christ based on biblical teachings. Some might consider us sons of perdition, the inheritors of outer darkness who supposedly knew the truth and rejected it. The name of our podcast, Outer Brightness, reflects the Gospel of John, chapter 1 in the Bible, specifically verse 9, which calls Jesus the true light, which gives light to everyone. We have found life beyond Mormonism to be brighter than we were told it would be, and the light we have is not our own, it comes to us from without, thus outer brightness." Making the transition from Mormonism to broader Christianity can be exciting, scary, confusing, challenging, and ultimately life-giving. Our aim here is to share our journeys of faith and what God has done in our lives in drawing us to his Son. We'll have conversations about all aspects of that transition—the fears, challenges, new beliefs, surprises, and joys. We're glad you found us, and we hope you'll stick around. I'm Matthew, the Nuclear Calvinist.
0: I'm Michael, the Ex-Mormon Apologist. I'm Paul Bunyan. Let's get into it. Welcome to this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. This week we have a special guest, or should I say... Matthew and I were special guests on another podcast. We went on the Radio Free Mormon podcast. He's a podcaster that's been going about four years now, and he's a pretty vocal critic of the LDS Church, uh, but he was once a ardent defender of the LDS Church. We went on his podcast to discuss an article that he published in the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies back in the 1990s on born-again experiences in the Book of Mormon. He recently did a podcast that summarized that article Uh, on his show. And we heard it and thought it would be a good idea to reach out to him to discuss that article a little bit further, take some of the ideas contained therein further. And so we reached out and he was gracious enough to welcome us to his podcast. So this week you get to hear us discuss with Radio Free Mormon, his article, and he also puts some questions to us. We're calling this episode Behind Enemy Lines. That's a play on his tagline from his podcast, but it's also A bit of a play on how the conversation went. Uh, Needless to say, it was fun and we enjoyed being on his podcast and discussing these topics with him. This episode, as well as the next episode, uh, will be special guest episodes. Next week, we'll have, for your listening pleasure, a conversation that the three of us had on our podcast with Jackson Washburn, a young, aspiring Mormon scholar. And he came on to discuss an article that he wrote on his blog, related to Grace in the Book of Mormon. Both of these conversations on born-again experiences in the Book of Mormon and Grace in the Book of Mormon are leading up to a series that we recorded on salvation with uh, regard to our Articles of Faith series. And so these two episodes are coming up, and then our episodes on What About Salvation. We hope you enjoy it all. Thanks, Fireflies.
2: We got a couple of hours and what I want to do was spend the first hour answering your questions. I want to give a brief introduction so people who haven't maybe don't know the background will know the background. Hopefully it won't take me more than five minutes. Then we can get to the questions and then I had some questions for you in the last hour to talk to you guys about your journey and why it is that you're here at this particular position in your lives.
0: Yeah, that sounds perfect.
2: Okay. All right. Well, oh, by the way, you can call me RFM or whatever you want, except for my real name. and. (laughs) <laughs> assuming you know it, but, uh, how should I refer to you? Paul first. Yeah. You can call me Paul. That's fine. Paul. Okay. And Matt, Matthew. Matt, Brother Matt Matthews.
1: You can call me, uh, the nuclear Calvinist if you really want to. <laughs> the what
2: Calvinist?
1: <laughs> I don't even remember the history behind that, The like nuclear, I'm a nuclear engineering student. So you're they're... working on your PhD. <clears throat> uh, correct. Yep. Wow. That sounds impressive. Uh, It sounds impressive,
2: but then when you see my day-to-day, it's not that impressive. (laughs) (laughs) That seems to be the way it is with everything, really. (laughs) Yep. You may recall that I did a couple of podcasts back in that spate of nine weeks during the coronavirus lockdown when I was putting up a new podcast every weekday for nine weeks. And at one point, I came upon an old paper I had written back from 1994 when it was published, and it dealt with the subject of salvation or the plan of salvation as it is taught in the Book of Mormon. Briefly, the background on that was that, of course, I had been a member of the church since 1978 when I was baptized, and there's a very specific plan of salvation that has been taught in the church at least during the last five centuries or so. Excuse me, five centuries. No, I'm not quite that old. Five decades. Five decades or so. And it's very much a works-based plan of salvation with a little grace thrown in on the side for good measure, just to make up for those deficiencies that we have even after we've done everything we can do and nevertheless fall short. There's a little grace there to cover up that bridge, make it good so we can go to heaven or the celestial kingdom even to be with God and Jesus and our families forever. So this is the culture that I grow up in, in the LDS church, but I'm also studying the book of Mormon, which I'm told to do by the leaders of the church. And I read it frequently and I'm trying to read it, uh, attentively and really pay attention to what's being taught in there. And sometime around the late 1980s, it was, that I began to realize that the the plan of salvation, as it's taught in the Book of Mormon, seems to be substantially different than the plan of salvation that was being taught by the leaders of the church. In fact, the Book of Mormon seems to teach a plan of salvation that is much more grace-oriented than what I was hearing from leaders of the church. Now, of course, As a Mormon in Texas during the 1980s, I had a lot of occasion to come up into contact with and debates with born-again Christians, right? And, of course, we're talking frequently about salvation by works versus salvation by grace, and there's a lot of argument about that in these circles. So it was quite a surprise to me to find out that the Book of Mormon seemed to be teaching A plan of salvation that really was much more in line with what the Bordean Christians were teaching than it was with what I ostensibly believed, and certainly with what I was being taught by the leaders of the church. So I ended up writing a paper about it. I read through the Book of Mormon again with this idea in mind, and I picked up on a number of things and I wrote them down. And it actually got published, much to my chagrin and surprise, in the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies in 1994. And so that is the paper that I dug out of Mothballs a few weeks ago, and I read it. Actually, I didn't read it. I read a synopsis of it, uh, sort of a popularized version, one that hopefully wasn't so dry and boring as is sort of required by scholars to write scholarly papers to be written in scholarly journals. So I went over a version of it. I touched on a number of points, what I think are some of the main points in that paper. And then I had also written a subsequent paper, which was called... uh, What was it called? It was, well, it was a subsequent paper dealing with the same issue, but going into additional questions that the first paper had raised, but not answered. I think there were six questions that it raised, which I attempted to address once again from the text of the Book of Mormon. The whole idea is what is the Book of Mormon saying about this issue from the first page to the last and everything tween. And I submitted that second paper to the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies, and they went and thumbs down. They didn't even really give me a a reason. As I recall, it was just kind of a cold uh, rejection letter which I've certainly gotten used to getting cold rejection letters, but I was a little bit surprised because they had published the first version. They didn't give me a lot of explanation, but obviously they were not interested in uh, having the second paper published, which is their prerogative. So I went through that second paper also on the air in a second subsequent podcast recently. And then what to my wondering eyes should appear, but a message from a fellow named Paul and Paul is a person who I think was interested in the paper, interested in the paper, what I had said, For certain reasons of his own, I think it struck a chord with him, perhaps with beliefs that he has developed independently of that paper and where he's at in his life. Paul reached out to me. We suggested that maybe we should do an interview about it, a podcast about it, because he had a number of questions he wanted to ask me. He's also submitted those questions to me. And not only Paul, Paul is not alone. He's not by himself. There are other people that he associates with uh, who are Mormons or post-Mormons. We'll get into that as well. But have a Mormon background and have also come to the same conclusion that the Book of Mormon talks about born again Christianity. And apparently, they have adopted this to some degree or other in their own lives and in their own spiritual journey. So, first off, Paul is with us today. Paul, good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's a good morning here in Northern Kentucky. Northern Kentucky. And also, Paul's here, and also Matt. And Matt is with us. And I think Matt is a friend of Paul's. Is that right, Matt? Well,
1: friend is a very loose term. It's a very loose Paul. term.
2: <laughs> no, we're we're good friends. Yeah,
1: it's we've we've gotten to know each other over the past year or so. I think when he invited me to to join with his podcast, so
2: we've gotten to know each other quite a bit. Well, can you tell me or Paul, whoever's really in charge of this podcast? Because you have got your own podcast going. Is that Paul or Matt or both of you?
0: It's both of us, and and we also have a a third wheel that we. Let tag along with us, Michael, who couldn't be with us today. Um, yeah, yeah that's my one. fault. I got—I I apologize, <laughs> but go ahead. Yeah. So our, our podcast is the Outer Brightness Podcast. We launched it uh, at the beginning of April, 2020. Uh, so kind of just when you were in the middle of doing your your whole nine week uh, stint, which I, I got to say that was just amazing to pu- to publish a podcast every day. Um, I don't know how you did it,
2: <laughs> but. I don't either, actually, in retrospect, it was quite exhausting, but, but thank you. And so you actually started your own podcast in April. Then coincidentally, uh, I ended up doing my two podcasts about my, my papers that I had published now over 25 years ago for crying out loud. And then that caught your attention, correct? Correct. Yeah.
0: I, I was listening to your podcast and actually, um, when I reached out to you through bill real, I, I, uh. I had mentioned that I'd been listening to his Mormon discussion podcast since its inception. And, and as I went back through your episode archive, I realized I've been listening to you for a long time as well. You know, so your voice has been in my ears while I've been mowing lawn or refinishing my deck for a long time. Um, And I think, you know, I, I really am appreciative of what you do Uh, some of the episodes you've done that have been meaningful to me over the years is are like episode 13 wrong roads um all the episodes you've done on the Joseph Bishop MTC sex scandal I think are super important. and what you're doing there with the the legal aspects of that and trying to get the the documents out, I think is really important. Um, your own personal story that you did on Mormon Stories podcast, uh, Magic in the Book of Mormon recently. Uh, and then of course, you know what brought us together for this. Uh, your episodes one seventy five and one seventy six born again Book of Mormon. Um, Even though the numbers. Wow. Yeah, I pulled them out. But, um, <laughs> uh, you know, Michael, our friend who couldn't be with us, uh, he, he, he came out of the LDS church about uh, four years ago, uh, I believe it was. And his journey really was through the Book of Mormon and realizing that it taught a, a form of imputation that seems to be at odds with Typical Mormon doctrine on salvation, and so he started to see that in the Book of Mormon, and then realized that the the Book of Mormon seemed to be much more aligned with the Bible uh, in how it uh, how it approaches the method of salvation than with uh, the doctrine and covenants. And so um, that kind of put him on a on a faith journey that led him out. Um, but that's that's kind of why your episode stuck out to me is because you were kind of calling out some of that same uh, some of those same experiences by characters in the Book of Mormon uh, that sort of looked like born again experiences. So I thought it
2: would be a good opportunity for us to reach out and and connect on it. I am so glad that you did. By the way, when we were doing our pre-show discussion, I was talking about a certain order that we were going to do this episode in, but I may reverse that a little bit and I may mix it up and I apologize, but it seems that what you're talking about logically flows right into your podcast. Now you said that's called Outer Brightness. Right,
0: right. Outer Brightness podcast is kind of a play on the whole concept within uh, Mormon teachings of outer darkness for the sons of perdition, or those who, uh, you know, as you covered recently on your on your show about the uh, oath and covenant of the priesthood, those who who receive the Melchizedek priesthood and 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 then leave or don't live up to the requirements of the Melchizedek, Melchizedek priesthood are said to inherit outer darkness with with Satan and his minions. And so we're we're kind of playing on that, uh, bringing in. The first chapter of the Gospel of John, where Jesus is said to be the light that lights all men, and so we're outside of Mormonism, um, and outer brightness is 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 much there's much more light here than we were told there would be. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so that's great. Can you just tell the audience a little bit about what it is you do in your podcast? What is the theme? What do you cover? How many episodes do you have? What have you done? What do you hope to do? Yeah, the idea, that you can throw in at any time as uh, if you like.
0: Yeah, sure, just... go ahead. I'll just get the the spark of the idea and then throw it over to Matt. So um, the spark of the idea for it kind of came up in a conversation between Michael and I, Um, I I got to know Michael over Facebook several years ago. He was uh, still LDS at that time. And he, he had a couple of Facebook groups that, that we ran in together that were dialogue groups between evangelical Christians and Latter-day Saints. And I was out. I, my family and I left in 2010 Um, and Michael, he started a new group where his, his goal was to get evangelicals to read the book of Mormon. It was called the Mormon grace project. And he invited me to join that group. And I, I joined and was reading along in the book of Mormon with them. He wanted to prove to evangelicals that the book of Mormon taught grace. And so I was reading along and and being kind of a curmudgeon on archaeological issues and, and things that come up with the Book of Mormon, um, but he and I got to be pretty good friends as he went through his faith transition and so a few years after he had transitioned out, we were talking about the fact that you know a lot of people who transition out of the LDS church but want to maintain faith in Jesus uh, they struggle with with practical matters because of some of the teachings they received within the LDS church and so the goal of our podcast really is to be uh, a resource for those people who come out but want to maintain faith in Jesus um, talk about some of the practical issues that come up, worship, you know, how worship can be different uh, in, a, in a Christian church versus Latter-day Saint tradition and and, and various topics like that. Um, we've been working through a series on DLDS articles of faith, just talking about some doctrinal, doctrinal dif- differences. Um, but that's kind of the the impetus for the podcast. Well, it sounds fascinating. How many episodes do you have up? I know you just started in April. Yeah, we've got. I think it's. I think we just put up our sixth, and uh, we've recorded eleven. So um, we've got twenty six or something like that planned. So we're just. Uh, you know, we've got we've got our plans in place. We're just recording every couple of weeks, and um, probably going to move to a weekly release schedule here. Uh, in a month or so.
2: All right, that's great. I encourage all my listeners to go over and give Outer Brightness a listen. Hey, can I tell you a personal story? Back in the early, without waiting for you to say yes or no, I'll go ahead. (laughs) Back in the (laughs) early 1990s, uh, when I was involved in this research and the publication of this paper, I was very excited about it. And I was aware that what I was doing is uh, somewhat contradicting the leaders of the church. Now, in the published paper, of course, there's no saying, oh, this is what the leaders say versus what this is, this is what the Book of Mormon says, right? I tried to avoid that completely. That would not have sold in the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies. Instead, I just tried to do a positive um, analysis of what the Book of Mormon teaches on the subject without even talking about what church leaders say about the subject. You'll see that there's absolutely no church leaders quoted, cited, or even footnoted in that paper. The closest it gets is to a quote from C.S. Lewis, which I know you'll want to get into here uh, presently. But I was actually, in the early 1990s, I gave a fireside on this subject over at a friend's house. And the friend's house, uh, uh, the friend was named Rex, and a good friend, very open, very interested in this. And there were actually quite a number of members of the church who came to this fireside at his house. And I began talking about this subject and how the book of Mormon apparently teaches salvation by grace. It teaches a lot of things that are different from what the current church teaches, but I wasn't going there. Okay. I was saying the first part without the second part, because once again, I'm trying to be careful of my audience and uh, just talk about what the book of Mormon says. And I remember at one point, about halfway through this fireside, I'm standing in front of the audience. They're sitting, you the big living room. And this lady, the sister who's there with her husband, stops me and says, why are you teaching this? This is contrary to what the church teaches. You shouldn't be teaching this. And she was quite emotional about it. She seemed upset about it. And honestly, it brought me up short. I'm standing there looking like a deer caught in the headlights. And thankfully, my friend Rex jumped into the breach, right? And he jumps in and he starts addressing this lady very nicely. But he says, why are you so defensive about this? And immediately put it back on her. Right. It was a brilliant move on his part, I thought, because she said, well, I'm not being defensive. And he says, well, it sure sounds like you're being defensive about it. And finally, it got around to about her attitude toward what I was saying rather than what it was I was saying. I was able to pick up, soldier on and get through the end of the presentation. But it was very interesting, this um, reaction. That I had at least from this one sister. Have either of you ever experienced any reactions like that when you've talked about this subject with other members of the church? Matt, first.
1: Yeah. So, well, I, I have several examples, but one that comes to mind is, well, so when I was still questioning the the history of the LDS church and its doctrines. I was trying to get a, a hold on what it is that I believed and what it is that the church believed versus what the scriptures believe, because it seems like they're all incongruous. It seems like everything is against each other as we've kind of been talking about. And I was actually engaged to be married at the time when I, when I moved out here to New York to start my doctoral studies. And so we had, we had been kind of progressing t- and looking forward towards marriage. And then, but as I started to de- dive, dive d- more deeply into the LDS church and its history, I was hoping that it would just be a faith, you know, a faith crisis where I would come out of it stronger with my testimony. But it seems like the more I read and the more I learned, the, the, the deeper my crisis went. And so I tried to share some of these things with my fiance at the, the time, you know, I said, well, what do you think about this? It says in the Book of Mormon, I'm not quite sure that's what we believe. Or what do you think about this historical event? Like, I don't really understand this. Could You know, I, I would try to share things, tiny things with her, but the shields would immediately go up. And I, I couldn't really get anywhere. And I and I realized it started to become more obvious to me that I wasn't, uh, the direction I was going was away from the church and it would have to end that relationship, which eventually it did. So it was a very difficult situation, but it's it's just really hard to, to share what you've learned because you get, I had such an excitement for learning about the history of the church on one hand, where I was like, wow, there's all these things I haven't learned before and they don't teach us. But on the other hand, I knew that it was going to cause issues socially and my family and with everything else in my life. So it was just a very difficult, difficult process leaving the church mentally and emotionally
0: and spiritually. Mm-hmm. How about you, Paul? Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, 2009 frame when I was kind of on my way out of the LDS church, I had kind of come in contact with some, some writings by say Robert Millett or Stephen Robinson that kind of touch on the the Mormon teachings on grace and, and, Started to have a view of uh, that was quite different, as 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 you've kind of explained, and Matt has kind of explained as well. That it's quite different from what the LDS leaders teach. And then after I came out of the LDS church and started to really kind of understand grace as the Bible teaches it, uh, it was it was freeing for me in so many ways. And I wanted to share that with friends and family who were LDS. And when I would talk to them about it, you know, they would take a very Hardline stance, as similar to the the woman that you were speaking of in your fireside, um, and I I wondered why that was, and I I kind of studied out the history of it, and of course sociologi- sociologically speaking, if you look at it, you know, late 1970s, there was maybe mid 1970s too, there was a real push by evangelicals to witness to Mormons, and you can see kind of a reaction. To that, by some LDS leaders like Bruce R. McConkie, who you know famously spoke about grace and and, and easy salvation and that t- those type of topics, and so I think Latter-day Saints over the last fifty years or so have a, a, a strong reaction to this idea that that one could be saved by grace apart from works. And so it's it's an interesting interesting
2: topic to delve into. Well, let me tell you something that that raises in my mind. Uh, first off. I understand then from what you're saying, correct me if I've got this wrong, that Paul, Matt, and also Michael, who can't be with us, by the way, when I said it was my fault, it's because of the time that I am available to do this, and he was not available to do it, and I'm sorry, and I apologize to that. Uh, I apologize to you, Michael, who I guess will be hearing this at some point, and I'm sorry that you can't be here. Um, But when you talk about Elder McConkie and other leaders of the church talking about this easy grace. It reminds me of the poster, the sign, even the um, the needlework that is common in LDS homes and is sold at LDS bookstores where it has a picture of Jesus and then a phrase, a saying of his quoted below saying, I never said it would be easy. I only said it would be worth it. Have you seen any of those? Types of images.
1: Oh yeah, I've seen it all the time. I, I mean, I've heard it quoted too, and I can't
2: really remember the genesis of that. Do you, do you remember that? If you're asking me, I have no idea because the funny thing is, is that I was seeing this even at the time back in the 1990s, and I'm going, well, wait a second. Jesus saying, I never said it would be easy. I only said it would be worth it. Actually, Jesus said multiple times that it is easy. He never said the opposite. He never said it's hard. He always said it's easy. And so I thought that was funny that in LDS popular culture, they are representing Jesus as saying something that's actually completely contradicted by what he actually says in the scriptures. Exactly. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think he ever said that. Never, never once. It's always easy. It's always the easiness of the way. Uh, it's just as in the Book of Mormon repeats that same refrain, which I quoted in my talk a few times, likening uh, belief in Jesus to uh, the Israelites in the book of Numbers and the story about the the brass serpent up on the pole. And all they had to do was look to be saved. And the Book of Mormon riffs on that and says, it's just as easy to be saved. All you have to do is look and cast your eyes upon Jesus. It's easy. It's always talked about as being easy. It's never talked about as being difficult, at least not in the Mormon scripture. So that's where I leave it to you. Go ahead. Did you have any other comments about that, Matt or Paul? Matt, did you want to take something? Mm-hmm.
1: No, I think I had a thought, but it's fleeting. That's
2: that's how my brain works. So go ahead, Paul, if you have anything. <laughs> that's why I have paper in front of me and a pen handy to write things down.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I I think that it's it's definitely interesting to kind of dig into why that would be within within LDS teachings. Um, I think back to you know my my having been raised in the in the LDS Church. I was I was raised in Utah um, part of the time near uh, Salt Lake City, and then. Uh, the majority of my adolescence uh, in West Jordan, which is a suburb of salt lake city and during the you know eighties and nineties when I was being raised l d s the church was growing leaps and bounds in terms of membership. there was a lot of growth in in South America, central and South America, especially, and there was kind of this view within the l d s church that that growth was proof that the restoration uh was true and at the same time within within America, there was pressure from evangelicals who were witnessing to Mormons. I remember when I was getting ready to leave on my mission in nineteen ninety seven the Southern Baptist Convention held their yearly conference in Salt Lake City, and they mm-hmm. went door to door in Salt Lake City, doing what Mormon missionaries do when they proselytize uh those not of the l d s
2: faith and Mormons had there a was different a, view of them doing it, didn't they?
0: Yeah, they, it was it was viewed as <laughs> kind of kind of a violent act to go door to door, which I thought was interesting uh, because I was going door to door in Utah at the same time with the missionaries and kind of a training uh, approach to getting me ready for my mission. Um, so I thought it was interesting that that Latter Day Saints kind of viewed uh, Baptists coming to their door as as a problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. The shoe was on the other foot. Exactly. Exactly. But I think I think you know that. That kind of plays up why there's this uh, this resistance to the idea of of being saved by grace alone is because it's it's more of a it's more of a sociological reaction to well you know we've got this this other view and that can't be right or there's not uh,
2: a purpose for our view. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing that strikes me, and I want to get your thoughts on this idea that comes to me, is that there are a number of members of the church who study the Book of Mormon read about the book of mormon uh find out about the book of mormon find problems i'll just put it generally problems anachronism with the book of mormon and end up leaving the church because they lose their belief in the book of mormon now it strikes me that you two and also michael are kind of funny and by funny, I mean funny, peculiar, not funny, haha. But peculiar in the fact that you end up leaving the church, not because you lose, excuse me, not because you lose belief in the Book of Mormon, but pe- but because you believe the Book of Mormon too much. Does that make sense? I think so.
1: I, I think that uh, Michael is really the one that has spent a lot of time diving into the Book of Mormon and talking about imputation in there. Um, for me, I did see, I did see that there were parts of the Book of Mormon that did teach about grace, and there were these born again experiences. But for me, it was, it was. It was really just seeing how much of the Book of Mormon is almost directly copied from the Bible. You know, all these morning and experiences and talking about, you know, bowing before God. uh, I I think it was uh, King Benjamin where he kind of told everybody to to get everybody to bow down and, you know, and pledge their uh, make a covenant with God and to repent of all their sins. And they had this outpouring of the spirit and you see all these experiences in the book of Mormon that, that just seem like they're just, you know, like that's correlated to the the day of Pentecost, you know, where where Peter is teaching everybody to repent and you'll receive the gift of the Holy ghost. You just see all these, these correlations from, from the Bible. And for me, it was more like as a Latter-day Saint, I typically saw it as, well, they're all scripture. So it all comes from God. So it's obvious that they would, they would seem similar. But then to me over time, it just seemed like, well, the, the phraseology is just too exact. You know, it seems like it's directly copying the King James Bible. It just seemed like a lot of the, the phraseology and and the topics were taken directly from the Bible rather than coming from the same source, if that makes
2: mm-hmm. So, oh, to yeah. Me, and I, oh, go ahead, uh, Paul. No, no, no. Please, please. Go ahead. I was just saying, I think that for a long time, people have seen the experience of Alma, the younger and the angel, his encounter with the angel is being very similar if not directly borrowed from, the account of Paul in the New Testament on the road to Damascus.
1: Right, exactly, yeah. You, you compare those experiences and they're almost exactly like. And, and you ask, Latter-day Saints have, you know, so why, why is the, the process of salvation that we experience in the Latter-day Saint Church, why is that so different from what we see in the Bible and the Book of Mormon? You know, it seems like, in the Latter-day Saint church, you're, you're raised up to go through all these steps. You know, you you become baptized at eight, you receive the priesthood at 12, you go to the temple, you serve a mission instead of relying mostly on this, this born again experience, you know, this, this experience of really pledging yourself to God. And there are many Latter-day Saints that do, you know, that do claim to have this experience, but then it always goes back to works. It always goes back to covenants and and ordinances. and, And that's what we really need rather
2: than having this direct connection with with Christ. Yeah. Can I ask you something? I know there's three of you that we've talked about. Two of you are on the line, Matt and Paul, and there's Michael, who's not here. But other than you three, how many are there of you? Do you know that you're aware of, obviously? How many Mormons are there who end up going from Mormonism to a born-again type of Christianity through their study of the Book of Mormon? Do you have any idea? I don't know about directly through the study of the Book of Mormon, but there's, there's more...
0: Ex-Mormon evangelicals than I expected when I was leaving. How many did you expect? I expected few because there's there's generally a, a position of animosity between the two groups, mm-hmm. and so I didn't expect that a lot of a lot of people would want to. And, and it is a pretty common approach that people who leave the LDS Church take. I still listen to Mormon stories and and kind of lurk in that podcast or in that uh, Facebook community. And so I know kind of generally how people think, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's a sense that, you know, they come to a view that I've been, I've been deceived and I don't want to be deceived again. And so I'm not going to jump right into another religious community. And so I I expected that there would be few that did, but um, there are more than I expected. And there's, there's quite a few that, that we know on, you know, on Facebook and, and other forums that we that we run in. So I,
2: I would say it's probably that I'm aware of probably in the hundreds. Okay. Well, that would be more than I expected as well. Of course, it's hard to count because you don't all get together at the same church. Correct. What about you, Matt? What do you think about that? More than you expected as well? Well, it's it's interesting because
1: my faith transition came when I was in the state of New York, where people barely know what Mormons are to begin with. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm kind of an odd duckling when, when I started going to my church and then I was a former Mormon. Um, but, but just based on my, based on my experience, like Paul said, I think you do see quite a lot. There is a strong ex-Mormon Christian community online, you know, on, on Facebook, but I think, I think there's a much, much larger community of, of Mormons or Latter-day Saints that leave the church and then they go to no religion at all or atheism. Um, I used to go to the, to the ex-Mormon subreddit a lot, but then I just saw that there are a lot of there's a lot of negativity there and there wasn't a lot of spirituality going on. So I didn't spend a lot more time there, but they have a really large community. You know, they've got thousands, if not tens of thousands of members on that subreddit. Um, Yeah. So, so I think there is, there is a community out there of, of, former Latter-day Saints who become evangelical, but they're, they're, they're honestly larger, like Paul said, than I, than I expected, but at the same time, they're really not large in the grants. There's not a huge, you know, leaving from the church into, into evangelical Christianity, unfortunately. So that's kind, of, that's kind of what we wanted to hopefully address with our podcast is since we've gone through the process of formally resigning from the church, leaving the church, and finding our way into different aspects of, of denominational Christianity historical Christianity, to kind of help and, and give people confidence or give people, you know, a little bit of insight as to what that process looks like.
2: Hmm. Okay. So let me ask you this question. All right. Uh, first off, before I forget, if any of my listeners are interested in the subject, want to pursue it further, may have similar inclinations, how do they get a hold of you? Yeah, we have a group on Facebook called Outer Brightness, where they can join and discuss
0: the podcast episodes, ask questions. Um, we'll often, you know, post out there that, we're considering covering a certain topic and does anybody have questions that they want us to cover
2: so they can definitely engage with us that way okay great now i've got so many questions for you i know that in the last part of this episode this is scheduled to run about two hours the last part you're going to be asking me questions but i have so many questions that are coming to my mind one of which is this you both said that you've left the church correct yes Yes. okay and by that i mean the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints obviously but let's start with you paul what are your beliefs still about the Book of Mormon?
0: So I'm I'm a little bit different than Michael uh, in that. So Michael doesn't believe that the Book of Mormon is a is an accurate representation of an ancient document, but he does recognize that it has many of the same and similar uh, doctrines taught within it that the Bible does. Um, so he he probably has a higher view of it than I did. I do. Um, when I was at the end of my mission in uh, Budapest, Hungary, I had made a. a a pact with myself that I would read each of the standard works during my two years on my mission. And so I, as I was coming to the end, I was reading through the New Testament and started to see, as you alluded to earlier, RFM, the similarity between Alma the Younger and Paul the Apostle. And that started to bug me a little bit. And I would kind of during my morning study, uh, before we would go out for the day to proselytize, I would sit on my bed and kind of think about some of the issues that and questions that I had with regards to, you know, where exactly in the Americas did the Book of Mormon take place? Uh, why is there so much similarity between characters within the Book of Mormon and characters within the, uh, and people, you know, that are spoken of in the Bible? And I would sit there and daydream about becoming an archaeologist. I, I wanted to go home and go to BYU and, and become an archaeologist and go to Central and South America and find the the, the hard evidence that would prove that that the Book of Mormon was an ancient record uh, because I, I believed it was. I didn't have any reason not to believe that. It's what I would was brought up believing. And when I got home, I uh, ironically, I subscribed to the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies hoping that that journal would give me some of the validation for my belief in the Book of Mormon as an ancient document uh, that I needed at that time. And unfortunately, it didn't. A lot of the articles that I read there uh, we're walking back uh, positions that earlier LDS scholars had taken that were probably too optimistic with regards to what the evidence out of uh, Central America showed. And so. Uh, like Sila 5 to...
2: from Izapa?
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. That was one you of the You know what ideas. I'm talking
2: about. I do. Yeah. <laughs> the yep. book of life stone. Exactly. The tree of life stone, right?
0: Yep. I sat outside uh, my workplace one day on my lunch break reading that article and uh, everything just like. I was like, man, this is, this is awful. Everything's just falling away from me. And I was just months off of my mission. Um, but I stayed in for a long time. You know, I ended up marrying, uh, uh, my wife, Angela, uh, we met online. She lived out here in the Cincinnati area and she had just, uh, converted to the LDS faith. So, um, you know, moved out here, we got married, started raising our children within the LDS faith. And, um, you know, I became sort of like a, a more of like a liberal Mormon. I, I read a lot of Eugene England and Dialogue and Sunstone and, um, you know, took, took sort of a, uh, okay, so the Book of Mormon isn't a, a historical record. It's, it's, a, it's a 19th century production, um, but it's still useful, right? It's, it's the means by which, I felt like it was the means by which I had been converted to Christ. And so I held that position for a long time. Um, But it it got to the point where uh, I just started feeling that that wasn't enough. Um, If the Book of Mormon wasn't what it claimed to be, then it couldn't be the foundation for my faith. And then I read read Rough Stone Rolling and other things started to crumble. Um, And eventually, you know, in 2010... Uh, left with my family
2: well let me ask so i'm understanding you to say that in answer to the original question basically you don't believe the book of mormon is true or historical anymore although you think a lot of the doctrines in it are true correct okay how about you matt what's your position on the book of mormon now
1: yeah that's i think a lot of what paul explained is it resonates with my experience also i tried to Separate the historicity of the Book of Mormon from the spirituality of the Book of Mormon. Um, one, I bought two books from Herald House, which is the bookstore from Community of Christ when I was kind of in my trying to figure things out. And one book was interesting. It's, it's called Millions Call It Scripture. And it's a book talking about how they took a very liberal Mormon view of what the Book of Mormon is. And it's, well, you know, every every religious group on earth has their own book of scripture. This is our book. Some people take it to be historical. Some people don't. And they they glean spiritual truths from it, which all point to, you know, which which all can be, Compatible with other spiritual truths from other books of scripture, and it took a very took a very liberal view of what how to, how to interpret what the Book of Mormon is, and then the other book that that they had, and I can't remember the name of it, but is basically witnesses of early Latter Day Saints and their views on the Book of Mormon, and they all spoke of it as being a record from Native Americans that was buried in the soil and it was actually dug up and translated directly, and so it was a very traditional Latter Day Saint view, and so it was just interesting that you could buy two completely opposite books on the spectrum of what the Book of Mormon is from the same bookstore, from the community of Christ. And, I, and from what I understand, they have a very wide spectrum of views. So that was kind of the, the way I was headed. But as Paul was explaining, I kind of went down the same path where, where once I really understood uh, sola fide, justification by faith alone, and, it really, and, and God really placed it in my heart and mind and really made me understand it, Um, I really just realized that if if that's true, which it is from Scripture, then everything that Joseph Smith claimed to be and and all the products of his supposed prophecy and his, his role as prophet, that they could not have come from God. Because while the Book of Mormon does teach a lot of things that are that are compatible with the Bible, including you know salvation by grace and things like that. But the the rest of his fruits, like the doctrine and covenants, where he see the evolution of his doctrine, the becoming a god and and eternal life and pro- eternal progression, all these doctrines. Since those were just so far off from what I was reading in the Book of Mormon in the Bible, I just I just couldn't accept the Book of Mormon as scripture anymore. So yeah, so i i i I've, i first I first rejected the idea that it was a historical document, but then now I kind of see it as a document where it was heavily influenced by the Bible and and other things that were going on in Joseph Smith's life. And I don't, I'm, I don't pretend to know who, if it was him alone that, that uh, wrote the book, I don't know. But, um, but I I see it as a document that's, that's, that takes content from other books uh, including the the majority of it from the Bible. And and so there's truths in it, but I
2: don't think it is what it claims to be as Paul had explained much better than I did. Okay. So Matt, you've touched on this and I'm going to ask you this question now, Matt, then I'm going to ask the same question to Paul. Okay which is this, you were formerly Mormons. You've now gone to a place where you consider yourself to be born again Christians or evangelical Christians. Am I using the correct terms here? Yeah, sure. Either, either are fine. Okay. Matt, can you tell us about your born again experience?
1: Sure. Um, so I won't, I'll try to be brief. Um, basically when I was going through my faith transition and trying to sort out all these, all this doctrine, all this history. And I, it felt like what I've been taught in church was not the same as what I'd read in history. And, all these things that were in my mind, it, it slowly kind of put me into the dark hole, depression. And um, so I just felt like I was slowly coming down into this pit of despair and I didn't really know where to go and the walls were closing in around me. And so I got to a point where, where a lot of post-Mormons or post-Latter-day Saints will describe as their shelf breaking. You know, when you when you read something that doesn't make sense to you, that you can't fit into your worldview, you just put it on the shelf and don't worry about it. Until it gets to a point where the shelf is so loaded with, with things you can't understand that the shelf just completely collapses
3: mm-hmm.
1: so i can remember when I, when I had that shelf collapse experience and you know i shut off my phone for a few days and i just just went to a deep depression just didn't talk to anybody for at least two days and then um so, but then I kind of tried to pick the pieces up after that. I tried to, I tried to say, well, you know, maybe I can make it just a, the Book of Mormon, a spiritual book. Maybe I can make this work. You know, I tried to try to pick up the pieces myself and make it work in my life somehow. But then I got to a point where, you know, I was still depressed. I didn't know what to do. So I just, I just remember one night just being completely in despair. I just, I just felt like I had no hope. And I, I just remember being pulled down to my knees and I just, Prayed to God. I said, "God, you know, I've I've read about the Trinity. I've read about, you know, LDS doctrine. I I don't really know exactly what I believe right now, but I'm trusting in you, God. And I just want to put all my trust in Christ to save me. And I just cried out to God to please save me. And and all that all that pain and all that anger and all that confusion and and sadness, it just completely was just swept away from me when I just put all my trust in Christ to save me. And um, just I've, for three days after, I felt like I was just floating on cloud nine. You know, like I just never been happy like that for such a long time. And I knew that it had to come from God. I knew it wasn't just something in myself where I just self-actualized and changed my state of mind or something. I knew that that had to come from God when I put all my trust in Christ to save me not only from my sins, but from this despair I was in. So that was in the summer of 2016 when I had this, uh, what I would call a born again experience.
2: Is it a scary thing? And I'm going to guess the answer is yes. is, Is it a scary thing during that process to let go of the feeling that you need to do it yourself and just to let God do it.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. It's it's like we as humans, we want to be in control of something. We, we want to know, we want to make sense of the world and we also want to have our hands on the wheel. And so when you're just taken to that point of of like a precipice of a cliff and you just realize, okay, I've tried to work. I've tried to do this all myself. I've tried to make sense of it in my head. I've tried to do the best I can to be the best person I can and nothing has worked. And it's almost like, For me, at least, you're brought to a point where God just has to completely humble you and make you realize look, you've tried this your whole life. Why don't you just give in? Why don't you just give it up? You've tried it. It doesn't work. You've got to let me do it. And when you get to that point, it's scary. It's like falling backwards off of a cliff. But then once you do it and you realize that the Lord grabs you, it's the most peaceful experience that I've ever had in my life.
2: You know, you're using that metaphor about the cliff. It reminds me of how I felt when I actually went through this experience myself back in the early 1990s. So I'm in my early 30s at the time. Obviously, I'm in a different place now than I was then, but I can still remember it now vividly, which is that the idea that the image I had was that here I'm trying to obey all the commandments of the LDS church and to merit salvation and ultimately exaltation. Could not do it, could not do it, could not do it. And I was really trying. I mean, this was no half-hearted effort. I'm really, really trying, but I kept falling short. And the image that came to me as I'm studying the Book of Mormon and thinking about this, and maybe I heard about this from somebody else's image, but that I had already fallen off a cliff and that I had grabbed onto this sort of bush or tree, this thin tree that's growing out of the side, a little bit down from the, the top of the cliff. So that's all there is growing out. I'm holding onto this for, with all my might to keep from falling. And I keep trying to scramble back up to the top of the cliff, but it's out of reach. I'm like 10 feet down, I can't get up there. I keep trying, I keep trying, I keep falling back and grabbing onto this tree. There is no hope for me to get back to the top of the cliff. I've gotta let go of the tree. And I fought against letting go of that tree for so long. And finally in my mind, it's not really physical, but it's in my mind and in my heart, I let go of that tree. And I just trusted God to catch me and God caught me and then lifted me back up to the top of the cliff, the place I couldn't get to on my own. How does that sound?
1: Yeah, that's, that's, I, I think the way you described it, yeah, it just really resonates with my experience. I'm not sure.
2: I'm guessing Paul, you would, you would agree with that. Yeah. Tell us about your conversion experience, Paul, would you? Yeah, for sure. So RFM, you, <clears throat> excuse
0: me, you asked the, the question of whether it's scary. It definitely is. Um and we, we recently released three episodes on our podcast where we each go into our journeys in, in pretty, uh, pretty in depth. And uh, I'm going to share three experiences from my journey that I think were were critical for me, because I don't I don't think I think it's hard to pin down exactly one experience when this is when I was born again. Um, but I think it for me, it happened over time. And part of that is because of that fear of letting go. So Towards the end of my mission, I talked about how I was reading the New Testament and reading the letters of Paul and reading Acts and seeing the similarities between Alma the Younger and Paul and some of the questions that that raised in my mind. Well, I started to have a fear at that time that maybe I wasn't saved. Even though I was doing everything that the LDS Church prescribed for me to do at that point in my life, including serving a mission, I began to fear that I wasn't saved. And so I began to pray while I was on my mission in my last area that I would be saved. And interestingly enough, I started to pray to Jesus, which is kind of verboten within the LDS uh, framework.
2: Uh, Bruce Herman would be so disappointed in you.
0: I know he would, I know, but I, I started to pray to Jesus directly that he would save me. Um, And I didn't, I didn't experience anything miraculous or, or overwhelming at that time, but it was just something that became part of uh, my daily ritual of prayer. And but I was still, you know, I was a, I was a missionary, so I was still very much uh, dedicated to preaching the LDS gospel and getting out there and pounding the streets and doing all of that. And then when I came home, you know, and met uh, a woman online who had just recently converted to the LDS church, I saw that as a sign. Well, you know, God prepared her for me. And, you know, so next step, uh, next rung on the ladder uh, is is marriage in the temple and, and then enduring enduring to the end. And so... You know, went through those steps, um, but like you, R.F.M., I started to feel that I was never really, never really living up to everything that was required of me. Um, I was always
2: falling short. And can I just jump in there? I don't mean to interrupt, but I am. This is something. Every time I go to church, every week I go to church. Every time I listen to people speak in church or give lessons, over and over and over again, I'm being told that I'm not good enough. I'm being told that I measure up, I'm told that no matter what I'm doing or how much I'm doing, there's still more that I need to be doing to be okay with God. Yeah, that's part of the culture. So I definitely get why it is that Mormons tend to feel that way because they keep being told that over and over. But go ahead. I interrupted. Go ahead, Paul.
0: Sure. No problem. So uh, probably around the 2004 time frame, my wife and I had just gone through a miscarriage and we were wrestling through the difficulties that that can raise for a relationship and the pain that comes with that, the grief that comes with that. And I was in a pretty, pretty dark place at that time. And I went to one day take a nap in our bedroom uh, mid-afternoon and closed the door because Angela was out in the other room with with some of our children and they were playing and and, and being kind of rambunctious. So I uh, closed the door so that I could rest, laid down, Hadn't fallen asleep yet and heard uh, something that I had never heard before in my life, but it was it was a voice whisper my name, and it kind of was unsettling because it, I'd never experienced anything like that before. And I opened my eyes and thinking that maybe Angela had come in and maybe I had dozed off and she was trying to rouse me for some reason, but the door was still closed and I was the only one in the room. I got up out of bed, went and opened the door and listened that you know listened down the hall that they were still out in the front room closed the door again, laid down. And again, you know, a few minutes later, heard the same voice whisper my name. And it was a, it was just a very, like I said, a very unsettling experience. I didn't know what to do with it for a while. Um, sometime later, I was talking to Angela, we, we would have late night conversations as we were wrestling through the miscarriage and the pain that we were experiencing and trying to make sure we were communicating. And um, I was mentioning to her because I was writing a short story that was kind of autobiographical at the time that you know I, I didn't think i had ever dreamed about jesus i dreamed about all kinds of things um, obscene things mundane things but i'd never never dreamed about jesus and he had been from my perspective such a huge part of my life for so long at that point why would i never have dreamed about him why would he never be a part of my uh subconscious enough to to rise to the surface of the dream um and then shortly thereafter i did uh i did dream Uh, about jesus i was walking up a hill which was similar to a hill i had i had stumbled upon while i was on my mission where uh, i think it was a catholic church probably in hungary uh, on on uh, the buddha side of the danube river had out in this field where there was this hill they had put up statues to the 12 apostles and on the top there were three crosses and my companion had and i had stumbled upon that one day while we were out knocking doors and in my dream I was walking up a similar hill without the statues, but when I got to the top, um, saw Jesus on the cross and then heard a voice tell me, you're mine. And that, that experience kind of stayed with me for a long time. Um, it, it was kind of a, an affirmation for me, I think, that uh, although I didn't feel like I was living up, um, Jesus had me and, and I was his. Um, but I still struggled for several years with with trying to live up to everything that was required of me, trying to fulfill my callings. I was in young men's presidencies. I was in elder corn presidencies during those years. And then around the 2007 time frame, I was going with the youth to the Louisville Temple, which is about an hour and a half drive from from where I live in northern Kentucky. And we rode down there and did baptisms for the dead one evening. And I was just feeling... I, I had been hoping that the temple would kind of pull me out of uh, kind of a feeling of, of maybe depression that I was feeling uh, kind of losing my faith in the LDS church. And I was hoping that the temple would would kind of reinvigorate my my faith and my belief. And I didn't get any of that from from going through the, the motions of doing baptisms for the dead with the youth. And so when we were done, I dressed and went outside the temple and, you know, kind of walked around the temple grounds and sat on a on a bench outside that night. And it was a, it was a cold, uh, late spring night and the stars were bright in the sky and I kind of looked up and, um, you know, was just praying, you know, why, why don't I feel anything anymore? And it was, it was an interesting experience. It's like the, like the stars swirled and, and gave me a hug is how I've explained it other times. And, um, I do, it was, it was, it was an interesting experience because it, it was the type of the type of thing that I needed, but it happened outside the temple. And so it was, it, was a, it was an experience that pushed me to realize I didn't need uh, all of the LDS trappings uh, to have communion with God, that I could have it without that. Would you consider that was your born again experience? I don't know. I would nail it down to one experience, but those three experiences are, are, are ones that I think were important in my journey
2: okay and the reason i ask that is because frequently when i've talked in the past with the evangelical christians they will say i will tell you the day and the hour and the minute that i was born again
0: yeah i think i think if you were trying to if i were to try to nail it down it would be the dream where mm-hmm. where i was told you're mine because from then on i had a feeling like it's grace you know what i mean i i, I don't uh i i felt comfortable in in the idea that i was saved present tense versus I was working to be saved future tense um, but continuing to try to attend the LDS Church pressured me to to try to hold on to that view of oh I need to try to be saved future tense um, but that that dream really yeah it was it was important
2: okay well we're about halfway through this interview thank you both by the way for sharing that I do have one more question to ask both of you okay and I'm gonna go to Matt this is a tough one are you ready Matt all right I'm ready the yes or no question and then you can explain okay okay are Mormons going to hell? Oh man, that is tough. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> Boom, baby. <laughs> no,
1: if you if you qualify by saying "Are all Mormons going to hell?" I would say no.
2: Ah, uh, but I did not so qualify it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> man, okay. this is rough. So yeah, are I'll Mormons say, going to hell? I'll still say no because, um, like I said, I, I I personally think that the gospel is what saves. It's not. It's not uh, allegiance to any kind of organization specifically or. Um, or you know, signing your name on a particular list. What's it, the person who saves us is Jesus. Jesus saves. So I believe that I was saved in 2016, and it wasn't until <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> it wasn't until 2017 that I actually resigned from the church. So for almost an entire year, I believed that I was saved, that I was redeemed, that I was in Christ, that that He had redeemed me from my sin. But I was still a Latter Day Saint, and I and I was still trying to figure things out. My doctrine, my 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 understanding of Scripture, it was not quite. Figured out yet? And I think that's the case for many born again. Because I think when you're a baby Christian, you you don't really know. You don't really know what to do or what to believe, or you're still trying to figure things out. And so I think that anybody, no matter what organization they're they're a part of, whether it's the Roman Catholic Church, whether they're Buddhist, whether they're Muslim, if you if you're trusting Christ, the the biblical Christ, if you're trusting in Christ alone to save you. I believe that you're. What if you're?
2: What if you're your average Mormon who believes that uh, you're trusting in the prophetic mantle of the leaders and the priesthood of God to give you the ordinances of salvation?
1: If you're yeah, if you're trusting in that, if you're trusting in them and in your ordinance to save you, the the LDS gospel, is sent. I think that you are on a path to hell. Certainly, it's a different gospel. When we when we look at the Bible, Paul he was speaking of the Judaizers. The Judaizers were trying to introduce basically circumcision. They were trying to give circumcision to Gentiles before they. You're not going
2: to go all Galatians one on me, are you?
1: <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean, essentially, right? I mean. <laughs> it's... It's basically what he was saying. He was saying that if you if you add this to the gospel, then you're cut off. You're you're cursed. And he warned twice. He said, if anyone who preaches another gospel, they are accursed, anathema, which is being cursed by God. So if you're if you're trusting in a in a false Christ, or if you're believing in a false gospel, um, and you have not repented from that, I don't I don't think you can you can you I don't think you should have confidence or comfort in trusting such a gospel because such a gospel
2: cannot save. Okay, well I've been putting you on the, um, the hot seat. I'll ask Paul the same question and I'll follow up with a question to uh, Paul about whether you believe in hell, as I understand traditionally evangelical Christians believe in it as a really, really hot place that really lasts a long time.
0: Ooh, Your turn, well, Paul, You're For bringing. Mormons it. going to hell. <laughs> I would say no. Um, I, would, I would
2: qualify that in, the, in a similar way to how Matthew did. Um, How about I've, President Nelson? Let's just go to President Nelson. Let's make it interesting and up the ante. And then we'll get to me personally. <laughs> but is President Nelson going to hell? I would say to that, I don't know. Because but I, what do you I, believe based upon your your theology? I believe he's teaching a false gospel currently. Yes. Okay, do people like that go to heaven? No. Do they go to hell? Yes. No further question.
0: <laughs> I mean, I, I believe I so was see, born again I, before. I
2: I understand that both of you are probably thinking, well, you know, I don't know because they're still alive, right? And they could always change or they could have maybe these feelings I don't know about, or maybe they're like I was back when I was in the church, but I was still born again and and struggling with, but president Nelson dies today. He goes to hell. Is that correct, Paul? I still can't say because I don't, I don't know his heart and only God knows. I think we all know his heart. (laughs) He wears his heart on his sleeve. It's black and withered. (laughs) Yeah, I, I would still say I don't know. I,
0: I, I trust in the goodness of God, and I, I don't know what's in a person's heart. I do believe Is God, God that is,
2: good to keep President Nelson from going to hell? Is anybody that good, Paul? God will keep anybody from going to hell. I think. And why that, God, I think then why that doesn't he keep good? everybody from going to hell? Why doesn't so
0: good, he keep everyone from going to hell? If he's so darn good. Yes, that's my question. Because I think we can be stubborn creatures. Um, I, I do believe I was born again before I left the LDS church. Right. I, still, I still pushed to hold on to my tradition, to what I was taught, to my family, to everything like that. Um, but I can't say that all LDS people are unsaved and bound for hell because I don't know their hearts. I don't know whether they have trusted in you know, what Jesus says at Matthew 11, you know, 28 through 30. Come unto me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See,
2: my yoke is easy. That's another place, right? My yoke is easy. Exactly. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. And I, I can't say whether a person has trusted in that in their heart or not. Okay. Do you see any evidence that President Nelson has? I don't. No, you don't. It's okay. God gives you the spirit to judge righteous judgment. <laughs> okay. Anyway, I'm so sorry. Anyway, I total silence there. Um, I'm not going to, I was going to ask you if I'm going to hell, but you'll know, probably get the same answer. So, um, but God is not good enough to save a stubborn person in heaven. Is that right I think, Matt or Paul? To, to I think God is
0: good enough to save a stubborn person in heaven? Paul the apostle was extremely
2: stubborn in what he was doing and God reached out to him and saved him. Right. But it had to do but it had happened in this life. Is that your understanding? Yes. No salvation beyond the grave. No. Same with you Matt? Yeah, I agree with that. I think okay. I think God God does save stubborn people,
1: but he when he does save, he gives you a new heart. So he should take out that
2: stubbornness from within you and give you a heart of flesh as Ezekiel 36 says. Okay. So I got to ask you, I'm sorry. I'm going back to my, my 1980s, right. When I'm talking with evangelicals. So what about the vast majority of people on this earth, both past, present and future who never even hear the name of Jesus because of where they're saved. They live, they die without ever even hearing the name of Jesus. Are they condemned to help because of no fault of their own?
1: I would say that they are condemned to hell, but not for no fault of their own. We're not, we're not sent to hell just for disbelieving or not believing in Jesus. We're sent to hell for our sin. When we see throughout scripture, we see that we, we, each of us knows through the light of creation and in our hearts, we know that there's a God Romans one, Paul really talks about this where he says that, uh, that everybody has knows that there's a God and they know of his power and his divine attribute. Well, not all of them, but they know of his divine power and we're, our human nature, our fallen nature is trying to suppress this knowledge in unrighteousness. So each of us in our fallen state is actively trying to push this truth down, whether we replace it with, uh, who knows, you know, evolution or, or other ideas to try to say, well, there is no God, there is no sovereign deity above me. And we know, too, through our consciences that the this is the evidence of the work of the law in our hearts. So our our consciences condemn or excuse us, as, as Paul says in Romans two. So all will stand before God. We'll all have our mouths shut. We'll all be accountable for what we've done in this life. And I I'm a I mean, I'm a Calvinist, so I believe that whatever God whatever happens in time is part of God's plan. And whether you're a Calvinist or not, you know, going back through the ages, Christians had this view where God has a plan for everything. So yes, I, I do believe that if you die, I mean if you, do, if you die nowadays and you're born in a place that doesn't hear the gospel, doesn't know Christ, you don't trust in Christ as your Savior, you're just as accountable. Well, You, you are accountable for your sins as those who live in a country where Christ has preached openly. So, yes, we go to hell for, for our sins against a God that we know in, through nature, through our hearts, that he exists and that we sin. So we, we, we knowingly commit sin against him.
2: Right. I hear what you're saying, but let's get specific here. And I apologize for this. I know you guys didn't sign up for this, but nobody expects the Spanish English. Inqu- let's talk about specifically Socrates. Okay, let's talk about an individual, at least one that most people have heard of. Socrates, Greek guy, known to be kind of smart, lived around 600, I think, or 500 uh, BCE. So he's a guy, he never gets a chance to hear about Christianity just because of when he's born. God's in control of that, presumably, when he lives. Uh, does a lot of good, apparently, at least according to some people. Other people were not so thrilled with him. The men of Athens weren't happy about which. but he ends up dying, okay? And he is in such a situation, he never gets to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he never gets the opportunity to accept Jesus as his personal savior and be saved. My understanding from both of you is that Socrates is in hell today. Matt? Yes. Paul? I don't
0: know. And I'm going to, I'm going to talk about the way that Paul addresses salvation in the, in the Bible, right? He uses as an example of salvation by faith alone, Abraham. Who comes prior to the law of Israel, the law of Moses, and you know is outside of that, but trusts in God, right? Doesn't have a knowledge of um, a specific knowledge of Jesus Christ. Is promised that in his seed will all the earth be blessed, and the New Testament teaches that that seed is Jesus. But trusts in God that God will provide what God is promising to him in that instance, uh, a, a, an heir, a son, and and that's counted to him as righteousness. So that trust is counted to him as righteousness. And Paul uses that as his main example, uh, in Romans and and elsewhere, uh, for how one is, is saved. It comes outside of the law of Moses. It comes outside of works. Um, and it comes in a relationship of trust with God. So I don't, I don't know, uh, how each individual, uh, you know, whether each individual has come to that place of trust in God, in the true God, but,
2: uh, I'd I'd say it's a possibility. Okay. Well, I won't belabor the point, but right now, uh, I understand that both of you gave a different answer to that, um, and that's fine. That's fine. I think it's great that people have different opinions about different things based upon their own uh, points of view and their own understandings. Um, But both of you do agree that hell is a real place that people really are right now and really suffering torment. Paul, yes, no?
0: Is hell a real place where people are sent? Yes. Are the torments that are described, uh, are they less literal or more metaphorical? I think it's possible.
2: Does it hurt to be there?
0: I think it hurts to be there being separate from God. Yeah.
2: And are the people who are there or going to be there uh, in the future, are they going to be there forever? Yes. Okay. And do you agree with that, Matt?
1: Yeah, I would. Um, I, I mean, you could make distinctions between Hades and Gehenna, you know. <laughs> because we're we talking it. about
2: Hades and Gehenna, did you say Hades? You're trying, you're doing the original pronunciation or something? <laughs> is that what you're doing here? Yeah, yeah, Hades, Hades. You can just, you can yeah, Hades, Hades. Hades, the Greek Gehenna, the Hebrew, uh, which are somewhat different, but they have some similarities, correct? Yeah, well, yeah. Well, Gehenna is
1: more like the eternal state, or, you know, the 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 final state of the wicked. Whereas, because in Revelation it says that death and Hades will be thrown into the pit of fire. Mm-hmm. So you can you can make that distinction. But yes, there they those who died without believing in Christ or who were who not saved are in this place of
2: torment. Well was Gehenna and I'm stretching now for my recollections, was Gehenna this sort of uh this valley, this garbage dump outside Jerusalem that they, they burned day and night. It was like a dumpster fire they had there.
1: Right. Uh, yeah. So that, that was meant to to evoke the, the images of hell, of of torment that just never ends, because
2: like you said, it was just burning without end. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Now, look, I've gone over time and I apologize because I have been imposing myself upon you. And actually, I think the real reason you wanted to have this discussion was to ask me questions. So let me turn it over to you. I know that Paul had sent me a list of questions he wanted to ask related to my paper. Um, and I didn't get anything from uh, Matt, but I'm happy to answer any questions that you have for me at this point.
1: Sure. Yeah, we'll, we'll just go through the, that list of questions so you can keep that up and we'll basically just follow the plan. Uh, okay. So RFM, you state in your article that we mentioned earlier, not only does the Book of Mormon teach that fallen man is incapable of doing all good, it also teaches that fallen man is incapable of doing any good. Would you say this is the difference between the state of being carnally minded, uh, as, as it states in the Book of Mormon, and the Calvinist view that prior to
2: being regenerated, a person is totally depraved? Okay, so that's the question. Now, first off, let me tell you, I'm not an expert in Calvinism, okay? I know there's this tulip thing that stands for the five basic uh, essential doctrines of Calvinism, right? And the T is probably total depravity. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. The T and tulip. But there are other things that go along with Calvinism that are important to Calvinism, like uh, predestination. Is that right? Yes, Mm mm-hmm. Okay, but we're talking about the total depravity part. Um, I think that the Book of Mormon definitely talks about men being, uh, they're totally depraved. Uh, They are enemies to God. I don't know how you can put it any more strongly than that in that very famous passage that is quoted often in the LDS Church about the natural man is an enemy to God and has been uh, since the time of Adam and will be forever and ever unless they yield to the enticings of the Holy Spirit. So I think, yes, I do think the Book of Mormon uh, in the Book of Mormon, in the Book of Mormon, uh, carves out a, um, an exception to that for children, at least for infants, right? Because it talks about uh, baptizing infants and how if you think that infants need baptism, if you die in that thought, you're going to go to hell yourself. And actually that infants are saved through the merits and the mercy of Jesus Christ. So I think it carves out an exception uh, for infants. But other than that, Other than that, yeah, it looks like it's definitely uh, depravity in the Book of Mormon for all mankind. That's their default state. That is their carnal nature. Now, I do want to add a couple things here because this is actually in the original paper. I did not mention it in my podcast, but the thing that's so interesting to me about the Book of Mormon, one of the things, is that the Book of Mormon seems to teach that because of this carnal nature, uh, that man is incapable of doing any good Whatsoever. And I think that that may be one of the questions you get to and I apologize if I'm jumping ahead. Did you want to ask me any follow up questions before I go on?
1: Uh, I didn't. Paul, is this okay? I mean, I, I don't,
2: I think it's relevant to this question. Okay. Cause ether chapter three, verse two is explosive to me. It's amazing when I, this uh, the scripture jumped off the, the paper at me one day because I'm thinking about these kind of things, right? And this is what I'm looking at. And I'm reading the book of Mormon with this in mind. And it actually says in ether chapter three, two, that because of the fall, this is the quote, because of the fall, our natures have become evil continually. Okay. Now that's similar to the natural man as an enemy to God. But Ether chapter three, verse two says that because of the fall, which we all suffer from, right? Our natures have become evil continually. Our natures are evil continually. And then in Moroni chapter seven, verse 10. Okay. This is quoting Mormon, but it's in Moroni, right? It says, wherefore a man being evil. Okay. Okay which we know that we are continually from Ether chapter three, verse two, we're evil continually. But Moroni seven ten says, wherefore, a man being evil cannot do that which is good. So apparently, we are incapable of doing any good. And then I started thinking, well, does that mean I, you know, if I'm a natural man, does that mean I can't, you know, help an old lady across the street? That would be a good thing, right? We could do all Contribute to uh, charity, help out at the food bank. There's all sorts of things that we think of as good works, right? But apparently, according to the Book of Mormon, and I'm just trying to understand what the Book of Mormon says on the subject as opposed to pronounce eternal truth here, okay? Apparently, according to the Book of Mormon, that really doesn't qualify as a good work because a good work, my understanding of the Book of Mormon is that a good work can only be done by a good person and nobody is a good person until they are out of that carnal and evil state and become a good person or become born again solely through the merits and the mercy of Jesus Christ. So the way I put it there in the paper was man is incapable of doing good, or in other words, of being an independent source of good. And I think this is evident from the scriptural verity that the source of all good is God, right? That's the other end of the the equation. And the Lord is quoted in the book of Ether as saying, for good cometh of none, save it be of me. God is the source of all good in the Book of Mormon. People cannot be an independent source of good. Only God is the source of good. And he says then right after that, this is Ether chapter 4, verse 12. I am the same. This is God speaking. I am the same that leadeth men to all good. So apart from God, nobody can do any good in the Book of Mormon, good sort of becomes a term of art, this good works thing, right? We use it generally to think anybody can do good works if they're doing something that helps other people. But I think according to the Book of Mormon, and I apologize if I'm repeating myself, it's such an unusual idea for most Mormons to hear the Book of Mormon actually teaching this kind of, but the Book of Mormon seems to teach, and I think conclusively, that good works can be done only by a good person, and they cannot be done by a carnal person. Person, they cannot be done by an evil person. And later on, of course, in the Book of Mormon, it's, it's this is the same passage Moroni seven eleven. It uses the analogy, right? A bitter fountain cannot bring forth what good water. And I think that's exactly what it's talking about there. It's not talking about fountains; it's talking about people. A bitter fountain or an evil fountain cannot bring forth good water. A bitter person or an evil person cannot bring forth good works. They can only be done through God through Jesus Christ. And it is the works that are done once we're in that relationship with God and Jesus Christ, that we have been made good through their goodness and their grace, that we can be allowed then to do good works. And only through that and after that can we do good works at all. Your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm an, I'm a Calvinist. And, and I think basically what we've been talking about is essentially total depravity. It's this idea that in our natural state, we cannot do good. Even, even those things that are morally good, you know, that are in conformance to the law, there's a passage in uh, Romans 14 where it says, "Whosoever has doubts is
2: condemned if he eats." This is speaking of, you know, I don't want to get into that context, but basically the the moral right of the, story the, the foods the foods that are condemned under the Mosaic law. And if you think right, that right. that's a sin to uh, eat a food that is condemned under the, Mos- the law of Moses, like uh, uh, meat from animals that have been strangled with the blood in them, for example, mm-hmm. or right. anything that's prescribed mm-hmm. in the book of. Uh, the book of Moses, excuse me, the law of Moses, uh, that I think that what you're saying is that Paul's talking about how if you think that's evil to do, then mm-hmm. it is then it is evil to do. But Paul's saying, Hey, I don't think it's evil and therefore it's not evil for me to do it. Is that what you're talking about?
1: Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And 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 basically at the end of it he says, Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Mm-hmm. So even even the best of our efforts without without true faith, without a regenerate heart, without being changed by God and from a sinner or a carnal person to a to a spiritually born person, even our best efforts are filthy rags as Isaiah. So I think I think basically what you described there is pretty much what, what Calvinists would describe as total depravity. It doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could be. It just means that our efforts are not truly good and we can't truly come to God in faith of our own volition because we are evil desires. So um, maybe we could transition to question two related to that. Many see the Book of Mormon as an anti-Calvinist. How would you reconcile what the Book of Mormon says, what what it seems to say about the carnal state with LDS teachings on the war in heaven over agents and Mormonism's general opposition to Calvinism?
2: Yeah, I think that uh, first off, we've got to distinguish the Book of Mormon from things that come later other books of scripture, other revelations received by Joseph Smith, certainly from what the church teaches today, right? Because I do agree there's an evolutionary process of building upon, there's an adding to that goes on over time. I do think the Book of Mormon itself is pretty. Con- uh, I think that, once again, Book of Mormon does teach total depravity, though there is an exception there, which I don't know, but I don't think that Calvin would allow for for babies, Right. I mean, everybody's totally depraved in Calvinism, right? Including little babies.
1: Right. Basically from conception, just because of the fall. So we're born fallen,
2: right? Right. So so the, I'm sorry. Yeah. So the Book of Mormon seems to carve out that exception pretty explicitly for babies. So it doesn't talk about eight years old or the age of accountability necessarily. Well, it actually it does. It does talk about people who die without knowing the law and that they're saved in heaven. You know what I'm talking about? I don't have that scripture right in front of me. So they do seem to carve out an exception for that, that there is a... Um, A requirement of knowledge that you know about the law, you know about what it is you're supposed to do, uh, but you nevertheless don't do it anyway. So I don't think so. I'm going to have to say yes and no. I see uh, carnal nature all over the Book of Mormon, but I do see exceptions carved out in the Book of Mormon uh, that probably would not be carved out within strict Calvinism. On the other hand, there's this, and that's just the total depravity part of Calvinism, right? There's this other part of Calvinism about the predestination. And I think that, um, once again, not being an expert in Calvinism, I think that Calvinism believes that everything's predestined from before the foundation of the world, even from before, you know, the very beginning, the entire scenario, how everything plays out has already been not just known to God, but planned by God, that he's totally in charge of everything. Do I have that right, Matt? Matt? Uh, Yes. Mm -hmm. Everything is part of his decree. Okay. So everything's part of his decree. And so uh, in Calvinism, uh, we might think that we have the freedom to choose what we're going to do, but really that's an illusion, at least within some forms of Calvinism. Correct.
1: Yeah. That's more part of the hard determinist camp of Calvinists. And I would say that even kind of borders on hyper-Calvinism. I think, I think most Calvinists that aren't hyper-Calvinists, they believe in, uh, we believe in compatibilism. So we believe that, that, free will still works into God's plan. So it's, that's why we're still responsible for our sin is because we still have the freedom to choose. We, we still have this, this ability to choose, but at the end of the day, all of it is part of God's plan. So it's something that's, we kind of leave it up to mystery at some point where we don't know exactly how everything fits together, but yeah, and and is that because
2: and is that because that doctrine starts to run into contradictions and difficulties? Because I, I start seeing the contradictions and the difficulties. The the first, the hardcore, or I'm sorry, what was it called? The the hardcore Calvinism? Uh, what did you call it? Hyper hyper Calvinism. Yes, hyper Calvinism. I think I think it's unattractive for various reasons, but at least it doesn't run into difficulties. You know what I mean? As soon as you start trying to mix Calvinism with free will, that's when you start getting the oil in the water, from my point of view, and you start running into the difficulties and saying, "Well, if God just knows from the beginning everything that's going to happen, then we could still have our free will to choose." And God just knows from the beginning what it is we're going to choose before we choose it, right? I think those two are compatible. But when you get to the idea that God has decreed everything from the beginning, then I don't see how free will can can be anything more than an. Elite. Are are these some of the difficulties that you're talking about that you reserve? For for the mystery.
1: Yeah, so, so it's it's kind of kind of getting a little bit off topic. Uh, hopefully, hopefully we can uh, get back to it. But but basically, we see in scripture two main ideas. We we see God's sovereignty. Um, I can't remember the, top, the passages off the top of my head, but there's a passage in Isaiah where it says that God decrees not only the good, but he also destruction.
2: Yeah, the good and the evil
1: good and evil. We also see that whatever God wants in heaven and on earth is what he is, what occurs. And I think that's Psalm one Oh, I'm not, I'm not good at numbers. Psalm one Oh nine, something like that. One Oh nine three, I think. I'll take your word for it. And, and we also seen Daniel, Daniel um, in that book when Nebuchadnezzar, when he was created into basically a feral beast, because he tried to boast of his, of his power and his, and his, you know, his sovereignty as King, you know, he was basically reduced to an animal against his will. And afterward, he gloried in God, who, who is sovereign over everything in the heavens and on the earth. So we have, this, we have this idea that God is sovereign over everything that happens, including the death of Christ, where in Acts 2, uh, Paul says that this was according to the foreordained plan of God. This would be the, Peter, right? Uh, Peter, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. In, in Acts two, mm-hmm. and we, but we also see that we are responsible for what we. Do. So we are responsible for our own sins. You know, when God's when God sees us sinning, when we go against His law, we are we are held accountable for that. So there are these two ideas that we have to reconcile, and people have reconciled this in different ways. And sometimes people leave it up to complete mystery and don't try to reconcile it. So Calvinism is just one form of of how to reconcile these two concepts.
2: Mm. You know how I would reconcile them, by the way, taking your word for it. And it sounds like, you know, what you're talking about and these different ideas, uh, seemingly, perhaps potentially unreconcilable, at least rationally ideas in the text of the Bible in these different books. You know how I would reconcile those. How would you? Uh, that they're just different people with different ideas, writing them in different books.
1: Hmm interesting
2: okay. yeah i would say these are different opinions different points of view and i would see no need to reconcile them now at one point okay at one point i definitely would have because i felt there was a need to reconcile everything not only in the bible right which is the burden that christians have old testament new testament and that's a difficult enough job but also the bible book of mormon doctrine and covenants and pearl of great price so you had all that there and now you've got to harmonize everything And it just ends up leading to, oh, just like a snarl at the end of a fishing pole, at least when I used to go fishing as a kid. And, you know, I'd get this massive snarl at the end and there was no point trying to untangle it, just have to cut it off and re-tie. But, um, uh, yeah, that's just how I would. And that seems to me the easiest way. Uh, But I understand, and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth right now, Matt, but I understand that you come from a point of view where you believe the Bible is, well, that you have to believe everything as it's stated in the Bible to the best of your ability and harmonize everything that's in the Bible with itself, with each other, with the different writers in the Bible. Is that correct?
1: Uh, Yes. Yeah. So we believe that all of it is God breathed. And while we can't necessarily reconcile all of it, um, we believe, you know, so I'm part of a Reformed Baptist church, mm-hmm. so we're we're part of the Calvinist tradition, and and the, so they've always had a, a really high uh, a view of Scripture that all of it is God breathed, and so you can't have God contradicting Himself, uh, you know, in Genesis from what He says in Revelation or anywhere in between. So even if we can't reconcile it because of our limited capacity as humans, what God has spoken is it, it's all compatible. There's nothing contradictory.
2: Okay, yeah, and I, I figured that was where you were coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sorry, and I don't mean to get off the, the beaten path here from where we were going, although I think it's very interesting mm-hmm. to go on these paths and, and find out more about what each other, what each of us believes. Um, so, did you want to go to the next question or did you want to say anything else, either you, Matt, or Paul? Did you have anything, Paul? No, I'm good.
1: Okay, yeah. So I figured, uh, yeah, that's a good discussion. Let's move on to the third question. Um, so, do you think that the Book of Mormon says anything about when a person ceases to be an enemy to God? And we've kind of discussed this a little bit already. Is it when they call out to God for redemption, or is it only after they have been fully obedient?
2: No, the Book of Mormon's clear. It's right when they call out to God for redemption. Boom, immediate. Lee, it is an event, not a process, in the Book of Mormon, which is the opposite of what Mormon Church leaders say. Even as recently as this past General Conference, even as recently as the Gay Devotional, the devotional for the young adults by Elder and Sister Gay. I didn't play that part in my podcast that I just did analyzing uh, the devotional, but yeah, they talk about it. It's a process, not an event, in the Book of Mormon. It is an event. It happens right when you cry to God for mercy, and boom, you are saved. You are born again. You become a son or daughter. Of God and a son or daughter of Jesus, which are kind of the same thing in the book.
0: Once that event takes place, can a person revert to the carnal nature?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. At least they can re, uh, go to a fallen state. And of course, this gets to the difficulty, or I should say, the, the controversy within evangelical circles, um, which is the once saved, always saved question. Uh, because there are some places, I think, in the Bible where And we're mostly talking about Paul here, I know, uh, where it indicates that once you're saved, you're always saved. Because if you're saved by Jesus, right, then that means that you're saved through faith on his name, not through your good works, not through what you do. Therefore, the question becomes, if you're saved through his grace and not through what you do, can you do anything after that that would cause you to fall from that state of grace? And my understanding is, is that there are two camps within the evangelical Uh, line of thought one of which says no you cannot do anything to fall you did not get that far you didn't get saved by your works, so you can't get you can't fall from grace by your works and that would be the one saved always saved camp and then there's the other camp that would say uh you're saved by grace but yeah that doesn't give you license to do whatever you want to do you can actually fall from grace after that and go to an unredeemed state um the book of mormon is clear that it goes with the second camp It doesn't go with the one saved, always saved. And I quoted a few things, uh, passages about that in my paper. I won't go back to my paper. I'll just give you the one that comes to mind, which is Alma chapter five, the second longest chapter in the book of Mormon that memory serves, where Alma is asking all these questions of the people of, um, I think it's Zarahemla. It's right after he abdicated from being the the chief judge, went to just go do his religious duties. And he's going out to do the reformation throughout the land, asking them all the questions. And the first main question he asks is, have you been born of God, right? Can you, ha- have you received his image in your countenance? Can you sing the song of redeeming love? And he asks like 49 or 50 questions throughout the sermon. It's a sermon that's based on questions. And that's the first main question, as I recall. He asks a bunch of other questions and then finally gets to the second part of the sermon. And then he says, if you have been born of God, if you have received his image in his countenance, if you have felt to re- sing, sing the song of redeeming love, I would ask you, can you feel so now, have you continued to do this? And so, there's, there. I think it's very clear that the Book of Mormon teaches that yeah, you can do things that will cause you to fall from grace. Now, they're not necessarily the things that are taught in the list of commandments or the list of requirements that the modern Mormon Church teaches. I don't see that in the Book of Mormon anywhere, but it does seem clear that it does not promote the one safe, always safe form of salvation, but that one can be saved and then fall to an unregenerated state once again thereafter. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean,
1: that's, I mean, the view that, that you could lose your salvation is basically what, I've, what I what what I believe when I was already saying and what I read when
2: I read the Book of Mormon, so I don't... I, I
1: what do mean, you believe now? It,
2: so. What do you believe now, Matt? Are you once saved, always saved, or do you still believe that?
1: Uh, so basically, as a, so when I was studying uh, Christianity and Reformed theology, and the, one of the key passages that helped me to understand that I don't technically use the term um, once saved, always saved, because sometimes there's kind of a little bit of baggage with that, like with the free grace community, where it's like, you know, you you just believe there's no change of heart necessary. There's no change in lifestyle. You know, you just sign your card, you sign your ticket and you get to heaven for free, you know. So that's kind of why Calvinists don't really use that term. We we prefer uh, perseverance of the saints, meaning that, you know, whatever God, what work God has done in us, what he started, he will finish.
2: That's the P in tulip, isn't it? Correct. Yep. Perseverance of the saints. Okay, go ahead.
1: Yep. Correct. Um, So one of the key passages is John six. So it says, no one can come to me. Jesus is speaking, speaking here. And he's saying to the crowd, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So this is speaking to both total depravity saying that naturally you can't come to God in faith uh, unless God draws you. And so if the father draws you, you will come to Christ. And Jesus says that he will raise him up on the last day. So there's no ifs, there's no buts. He just says, those who come, will be saved, will be lifted up. So but you can why, only
2: come, but you can't come of your own free will. It's only if God draws you.
1: Right, because we're born in a state where we're incapable of coming to God in faith.
2: Okay, okay. Uh, by the way, Paul, haven't heard from you in a bit. What do you think about this "once saved, always saved thing? Oh, by the way, Paul, are you a Calvinist? Do you consider yourself a Calvinist? So I am not a Calvinist.
0: Um, my, my approach is, what does the Bible say? And hey, hey, hey. Matt's going to take offense at that. No, he, he won't actually, because I, I, come to some, <laughs> I come to some very similar conclusions as he does. Um, yeah. But it's, it's based on the text of the Bible rather than on the teachings of Calvin. Um, not that I think Calvin was necessarily wrong. Um, I just think that the Bible is our authority. Wasn't Calvin going off the Bible? Was he going off something else? Yeah, he was going off the Bible too, but, uh, you
2: know. <laughs> okay. I am sorry. Go ahead. I'm just having fun. <laughs> You're
0: fine. No, I, so I, I also fall into the camp of, of, of once saved always saved that, that once God has done that work in you, he's going to carry it through to completion. Like, like Paul says in Philippians one, um, it's, it's a good work that God does in you to give you a new heart and to redeem you. And he will, he will finish that work. There's, okay. there's, uh, there's blessed assurance in salvation
2: all right so if i'm correct about the book of mormon not teaching that then that would be one of the places where you differ with the book of mormon and on salvation correct okay great anything else on this question or do you want to go to the next one um i think that's pretty good what do you think paul we could probably just move on yeah i think so by the way there are uh, just so my audience knows uh there's eight questions here that have been submitted and we are to which one number four four okay
1: Yes. So question number four, do you agree that the Book of Mormon teaches imputed righteousness? Absolutely,
2: I mean it, by the way, go ahead.
1: <laughs> that, it is the, that it is only the merits, mercy, and grace of Christ imputed or credited to sinners that makes them righteous.
2: Yes. And it's funny that you actually sort of give the answer to the question after your IE. Yeah, that it is only through the merits, mercy, and grace of Christ, because you're quoting from the Book of Mormon right there, that it's only through the merits, mercy, and grace of Christ That we can be saved is what the Book of Mormon actually states. Do you have that reference with you right now, by the way? Oh, I don't. Is it Second Nephi or something? I think think it is. Okay. But it actually says that in the Book of Mormon. So, yes, absolutely. The Book of Mormon teaches imputed righteousness. And by that, I mean that we are not ourselves righteous through our good works. It is the righteousness of God and Jesus that is imputed to us through their grace, through our crying to them for that mercy— that they impute to us. So any righteousness that we have is their righteousness. Once it's been imputed to us, any goodness that we have is imputed to us from their goodness. Any good works that we do is imputed to us from their goodness. And that kind of ties into what I was talking about before with the book of Mormon teaching that God is the only source of good and that separate and apart from God, men are in the carnal state and women too, by the way, men and women are in the carnal state and they will be evil forever unless by the way, it's not unless they start obeying all these commandments, right? In King Benjamin's sermon, it's the natural man is an enemy to God and has been since the fall of Adam and will be forever and ever. It doesn't say unless they start obeying the commands, unless they start paying their tithing, unless they, uh, you know, start doing their home teaching or their ministering. Now, right? It doesn't say that. It says they will be an enemy to God forever and ever unless they yield to the enticings of the Holy Spirit. Okay. That's what we have to do we have to get out of the way of what it is that God wants to do with us according to the Book of Mormon at least the way I read it
1: so one quick follow-up question to that yeah there's there's we've talked about the differences in in uh, evangelical Christianity the difference between Calvinists non Calvinists there's many different views. Um, Calvinists believe in irresistible grace. That when God saves, when He draws, it's it can't be resisted. So basically, what you're saying is that to yield to the enticings of the Holy Spirit means you there is the possibility that you can that you
2: can resist the enticings of the Holy Spirit. Is that correct? Yes, I think so. I think that the agency part in the Book of By the way, I'm thinking that simply irresistible has got to be the closing song here. I don't know. <laughs> okay, but <laughs> but I think the Book of Mormon. Ah, uh, as far as depravity is similar to that part of Calvinism. But when it comes to the ability to choose and to resist grace, that you have to yield to the enticings of the Holy Spirit, you have to get out of the way of that. There's that element of choice there that seems to be talked about in the Book of Mormon that I think is different in that respect from Calvinism.
1: Okay. Thank you for explaining that. Uh, Paul, did you have anything to follow up on that with? No,
0: no, I think we can go on to the next one and I'll, I'll take off from here. So RFM, we've, we've talked a lot about how, you know, culturally Latter-day Saints come away a lot of times with the view that I'm, I'm just not measuring up, I'm not doing enough, I'm not good enough uh, to merit salvation and exaltation, and, and how that, that view is something that they come to honestly because of the teachings of the modern LDS Church. Um, evangelicals have have kind of keyed in on that, on that and, and termed it the impossible gospel of Mormonism. So, one of the passages within the, within the Book of Mormon is a Book of Mormon that they point to is Moroni ten thirty two, which says, "Yea, come unto Christ and be perfected in Him, and deny yourselves of all ungodliness. And if you shall deny yourselves of all ungodliness and love God with all your might, mind, and strength, then is His grace sufficient for you that by His grace you may be perfect in Christ. And if by the grace of God ye are perfect in Christ, then you can in no wise deny the power of God." Um, do you think that what do you what do you think of the argument that the that the Book of Mormon also teaches that impossible gospel of Mormonism in that it says you know that it's it's
2: it's once you've denied yourself of all ungodliness then is his grace sufficient for you? Okay, so here's what I think, and this is actually what I talked about in the opening part of that first paper I wrote, and I didn't go over this in the podcast. So I'm glad you asked me this. The Book of Mormon is jam packed with contradictory statements as far as this goes and I can find them, uh, but let me just tell, talk to you about them in general first. There are statements in the Book of Mormon that talk about you have to be completely clean in order to inherit the kingdom of God. You have to follow all the commandments in order to be saved. You have to do everything that God wants you to be saved, okay? So there's that line of thought in the Book of Mormon. But con- I won't say contradictory, but I'll say juxtaposed. Juxtaposed with those statements are statements about that you're saved only through the merits and the mercy of Jesus Christ and all the other things that I talk about in that paper. So the first thing I talk about is, how is it then? And let me let me just go ahead and turn to this. You'll hear me turning the pages. I call it the problem of perfection in the Book of Mormon. And the problem of perfection is, number one, that man must keep, and this is women too, sorry folks, that we must keep the commandments of God in order to gain eternal life, okay? And the second part of that is, that because of the carnal nature, man is incapable of keeping the commandments of God. So we have this, they are actually contradictory, contradictory statements in the same book. First off, setting up the problem, which is you have to keep all the commandments in order to be saved. And then the other side saying, well, you can't keep all the commandments. So what are you supposed to do with that? And that's what the paper goes on and it studies and it sets forth what I think the Book of Mormon says about it, which is that, yeah, in the carnal state, we can't keep all the commandments of God, but we are required to keep all the commandments of God. And I think that this these contradictions, okay, these contradictory statements are designed to actually bring us to the point where we realize that through our striving, at least this is the way it happened with me, C.S. Lewis kind of talks about a similar thing. Through our own striving to keep the commandments of God, we finally realize that we can't do it, that we are incapable of keeping the commandments of God, because by the way, God has set up a system. Let me come back to that later. I don't want to get off on a tangent. I'll try and remember to come back to it later. Remind me if I forget when I said, because God has set up a system, okay? Um, But come to this point where we actually despair of being able to keep all the commandments of God because we can't do it, but we know it's critical that we do it in order to be saved, in order to be God, blah, blah, blah. And it's only at that point where we come to that despair that we finally realize that we've got to depend on God because we cannot do it ourselves. And it drives us to, to this point of despair where we can actually call upon God and cry to him for mercy. And then he will respond by saving us and by imputing to us his righteousness. Okay,
0: thanks. Let me, let me ask a follow up on that. And, I, and I'll just note that, that what you've said there is similar to what Paul, the apostle says about the law of Moses, right? About mm. it being a, a, a schoolmaster, um, that he wouldn't have known Sin, without the law, those types mm-hmm. of statements that he makes within his his epistles. Um, but a follow-up question on that. So once a person calls out for redemption, then then they're required to keep all the commandments. And how are they able to after that? Because their nature changes? Is that
2: is that your view of what the Book of Mormon teaches? Well, here's the thing, okay? Because there is the Book of Mormon teaching and it talks in several places about once a person is redeemed or a group of people are redeemed, then their hearts are changed that they have no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually. Right. But it doesn't actually talk about them actually doing good continually. Right. It just talks about this desire being changed. And so the Book of Mormon talks about that desire being changed. So I want to recognize and acknowledge that. But in my own personal journey, I realized that uh, even though, I felt different. I felt freed. Like Matt talks about, I felt very happy. I felt at Liberty now, all of a sudden um, that I was still going to screw up and I was still going to make mistakes and I was still going to violate the commandments. Right. It's just that it wasn't that big a deal anymore when I slip up because I have already trusted in God. He's imputed his righteousness to me. So I think that the book of Mormon talks about the desires being changed But I think in reality, no, it doesn't make you perfect. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden that you are going to be perfect in the sense of, and this is important, right? In the sense of now I keep all the commandments of God, right? No, now you become perfect in the sense of you're made perfect by God through his grace, not really judged according to your actions that you do after that. I mean, you're not out trying to, you know, commit genocide or anything. You understand what I'm talking about. Uh, That's kind of my take on it. So there's what the Book of Mormon says versus what, my own personal experience was I want to distinguish the two. And that's my answer to that question. What do you think? I think that's good. Do you want to come back to what you were saying about God has set up? Yes. The system? Thank you so much. All right. Now God's in charge, right? God's in control okay? He sets up the terms of the plan of salvation. He comes up with these commandments. I know there's this idea in Mormonism that commandments exist eternally. They they exist outside of God. He doesn't have control over them. They are eternal laws. But basically, let's put that to the side for a second, and let's talk about God being in control, okay? God's the one who sets up the commandments, and we know that nobody can keep all the commandments, okay? At least according to the Bible, you know, um, all of sin and come short of the glory of God. I think that's Romans 3.23. You'll correct me if I have that wrong. First John 1.10, if a man says he has no sin, he's a liar and the truth is not in him, right? And our common experience teaches us we cannot keep all the commandments of God, no matter how much we try. So then the question becomes to me, why did God set it up this way? Why did God intentionally, apparently, come up with a list of commandments that are so structured that we cannot keep them, that I cannot keep them. Presumably, if God were in charge, he could say, okay, look, there's one commandment. It's, uh, you know, don't kill anybody. Don't murder anybody, right? And the vast majority of people who've lived on this planet would be able to keep that law. Okay? Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. All right. But God has apparently, intentionally set up a system of laws that we cannot, as human beings, avoid breaking. Does that part make sense? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. So, So it seems to me, or at least it seemed to me at the time within this context of the Book of Mormon and within Mormonism in general, perhaps broader than that, even within Christianity, that we are put here on earth specifically because we are supposed to break the law. Okay. And that we are supposed to learn something through breaking the law in a probationary state where we do not have to live forever with the consequences of having broken the law. And it is possible that what we are supposed to learn, though I'm not going to say this is exhaustive or anything, or even that I'm right. I'm just speculating here, but it seems reasonable to me. That the thing that we're supposed to learn by being in a probationary state where we can break the law without living forever, the consequences of having broken the law is that good is better than evil. That breaking the law does not bring happiness, it brings sorrow. And therefore we can learn through our own experience to value the good over the evil, I follow that. I follow that. I, w- I would probably tweak it a bit.
0: My my view is more like we are here to learn reliance upon God, right? To worship Him, we w- we would not exist without Him, and so everything we have, everything we are, everything we could possibly be is a result of His goodness towards us and His grace and mercy towards us. Yeah. So you're sounding like King Benjamin there, by the way. <laughs> you know that, don't you? Uh maybe but I also think it's a, it's
2: the a general Christian view. Well, King Benjamin was definitely a Christian man.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Way before Christ came to the earth for sure.
2: I know it's a little anachronistic, but there you have it. Matt, <laughs> what did you think?
1: Yeah, I, I think I see what you're trying to say. And some, some part of me thinks or hopes that maybe someday you'll be Calvinist <laughs> because you see this plan that God has set forth and he's, he's made it, you know, he's made it in such a way that he knew that we would sin. Right without causing us to sin, without forcing us to sin. And that's a, that's a Calvinist belief. Um,
2: well, I tell you what, I probably will never be a Calvinist. I cannot guarantee anything at this point in my life. I probably will never be a Calvinist. And I know you've got a couple more questions, but I got to ask this question. Okay. When I was 12 years old, I was watching a Billy Graham crusade on TV. And at the end of it, he asked everybody to come forward, give their soul to Jesus, do the sinner's prayer, be saved, And even those who were watching at home on the TV, he asked them to do it. I was alone in my bedroom watching the TV. I did it. I stood up or got down on my knees, whatever it was, and I prayed the sinner's prayer that he led me in personally, right, through the TV. And so I understand from Billy Graham, at least, I know he's not a Calvinist, or at least I don't think he is, I think he's a Baptist, that I was saved through that experience. So my question is this, now that I have gone, joined the Mormon church, uh, basically outgrown the Mormon church as far as its doctrines and teachings and leadership, patriarchy, etc., Uh, and now really don't believe so much in Jesus as my personal savior anymore. Okay. That's, this is a long buildup for a question. Okay. But I think, you know, where I'm going, my question is going to be having gone through all that when I was 12 and everything up to this point now, when I'm 60 years old, okay. Did that experience when I was 12 still make it so that I'm going to heaven or am I going to go to hell instead right now, this moment, heart attack, drop dead. Matt, what do you think?
1: Really great question. Like like we've talked about before, it's a lot of uh, conditionals, a lot of ifs. If it's if it was true saving faith and you truly truly trusted in Christ and God justified you through that, then yes, you will you are saved. When you die,
2: you will go to heaven. I like that one. I like your answer, Matt.
1: So, but the caveat is that those who are saved, they may have hills and valleys in their faith, you know, throughout life. But I think if you know, they need to, God will keep them saved. Do you know what I mean? So they'll never, they'll never get to a point where they just outright deny everything uh, related to the gospel. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So like if someone claims that he was saved at 10 or, or five or or whatever age, and then later on, they deny that Christ is, is God. They deny that he is Lord. Uh, we see all throughout the Bible. It says that, you know, you cannot, you cannot, um, you cannot confess that Jesus is risen unless it's because of the spirit of God working in you. So if you get to a point where you reject that, it, it's a sign that in the Bible, J- John also warned of the Delphoi, which is basically just the Greek for false brothers. So there were many that that, that confessed Christ, that, that seemed outwardly in every single way to be Christian, to be believers. But then through something that they said or believed or taught, they showed that they were not converted. So there is also that possibility. And that's also why God warns us in scripture to constantly test. our. So even believers that feel truly that they're saved by God, that, the, you know, that he's redeemed them, that we need to constantly test ourselves. Is our faith true? Is it saving faith? Do we truly trust? Him? Are we showing signs of having been redeemed? Is our heart truly changed? Do we desire good and desire to fall? Because there are many people that may knowingly um, be false brothers or unknowingly. There could be people that are completely confident that they're going to heaven and then it turns out they won't be. So it's a, it's a false confidence. So, like so I said.
2: Really, so, really, you don't know until judgment day is that right
1: no not exactly you you, you can't have assurance of your salvation um, what does that guess- mean
2: does that mean a feeling <laughs> or a signed, certified letter from god or what I was going to say this. This this could be a really long deviation from our, from our questions. <laughs> because you're starting to sound kind of squishy on me here, and I don't know if Paul would agree. But uh, the evangelicals I've talked to, and I know you you identify as Calvinist, but um, sure. you know basically you this is the day, this is the hour, this is the minute when I gave my soul to Jesus and I asked mm-hmm. Him into my life as my personal Savior. Boom, that's when I was saved, and that's all there is to it. That's my assurance. That's my uh, I won't I don't want to say the golden ticket. But, you know, that, that's my assurance right there. And I am sure I know I understand because of that. And that's not going to change. And I don't have to worry later on, well, am I sort of off track or what's going to happen to me when I get in front of Jesus on the final day? And I guess I'll have to wait and find out because that's starting to sound like what Mormons believe. Mm. You know I what I mean?
0: Yeah, that's what yeah? you're saying. I'll jump in here that's and say that, that for, me, for me, it's a matter of trust, right? Do you trust in Jesus for your salvation? Um, I was going to touch on, like Matthew did, the... the what John says about you know those those who have gone out from us have shown that they were not really of us um, that that there is the possibility of, of of false conversion so to speak but if you if a person trusts in Jesus like like Paul uses Abraham as the example right he trusts in God and that's counted to him as righteousness I totally so what trust what goes him when on I was 12. what goes on throughout the rest of a person's life uh, if that trust remains um, then then yes, you got to keep the trust you got to
2: keep the trust. Yeah, sorry, Paul. You got to keep the trust. Yes. Oh my gosh, this is getting exhausting. No, I'm sorry. It's but but it's like um what what I'm seeing is that really this assurance comes with qualifications. At least from you two, I, I'm sure that you know other evangelicals who would differ with you on that regard, right? Yes, there's there's a bunch of different
1: views on on assurance for sure.
2: Right. Okay. Okay. Well. Um, anyway. Uh, I just want to throw that out there. Right. And just ask you, well, you know, does this change my situation since Billy Graham came into my life when I was 12? But apparently the answer is uh, yes, but not necessarily.
0: Well, I would ask you when you when you made that declaration of faith, what what prompted you to do so? Was it was it merely Billy Graham's words or was there what you would term a, a, a real drawing from God at that point?
2: Total drawing from God. God put me in front of the TV set at that time, gave me the interest in religion enough to turn on this crusade and listen to it when I'm 12, by the way, right? Nobody's making me do this. Nobody's in the room. I'm kind of, you know, not wanting other people to know I'm doing this. Totally God. Does that make it better for me?
1: And and one quick question with that too is, did you recognize that you were a sinner in need of saving? Because because in the Reformed view, when we read scripture, we see that faith is not merely just exercising faith in Christ. It's also turning away from sin towards him. So there's this, our faith needs to be a repenting faith where we're we're simultaneously turning away from sin and trusting in Christ alone to save us. So would you say that you also had that aspect of that conversion experience?
2: Absolutely, yes. So now I'm in?
1: (laughs) I mean, from what what it sounds like, you know, but but, but again, that's why we also must continue to test ourselves. In, In the Reformed Confessions, they talk about several sources of assurance ultimately the ground of our assurance is christ on the cross and we we trust in that but we can also have we can also see the outpouring of god working in our lives changing our hearts conforming us more to be like christ so that's that's something that can bolster our our confidence but at the same time we trust in christ alone and what he did and, and if we're continually trusting and what he's accomplished then that's that i think that's the greatest source of our assurance
2: of a, of a believer's assurance hmm. okay Okay. Well, I won't belabor the point now. I'll just give you my, my perception, okay? Is that it just sounds so much more like Mormonism. In other words, it seems like there's a distinction that isn't that big a distinction. In Mormonism, you have to obey all the commandments, right? To the best of your ability, and you repent and ask for forgiveness and along the way, right? To make up for those uh, failings. But at the end of the day... You stand in front of Jesus and he judges you. And that's kind of when you get to find out whether you made the grade or not, whether you were good enough to get into heaven or which heaven in Mormonism, right? So in Mormonism, you're judged based upon the works you do in your life, right? And And you find out at the end whether you're saying, and it sounds like what you're saying is similar that, you know, you go through an experience like I did when I was 12 or the experiences you described, but then you still have to go throughout your life without this necessary Surety, in other words, it's not necessarily sure uh, that you're going to go to heaven, and really, it could fluctuate. It could go down valleys and hills, as you talked about. And really, at the end, you still have to stand before Jesus and find out whether you lived your life after you were saved or after your conversion experience sufficiently in order to go to heaven. Do I
0: have that right? I would make a distinction there. So, I put that. So instead, instead of standing in front of God at the end of your life. If if you are a saved Christian, instead of standing in front of God at the end of your life to be judged, whether or not you have uh, after the conversion experience done enough, as, as you kind of put it um, instead you're going to stand in front of God and he's going to, you're going to be wrapped in the robes of righteousness of Jesus and you'll be judged based on the merits of Jesus and, and his righteousness because his righteousness becomes yours. Uh, at justification, um, at conversion, and so um, when I when we talk about false brethren, it's not it's not uh, people who I, I wouldn't view that as someone who falls away after having a true conversion experience. I would view that as someone who never really had a true conversion experience, uh, maybe because of their fallen nature, uh, joined with a group for uh, selfish reasons or other reasons than. Trusting in Jesus Christ for their salvation.
2: But Paul, that's exactly what I'm getting at. And thank you for putting it that way, because it seems to me that whether you're in Jesus's robes or somebody else's robes at the end, um, that really what you're finding out is whether your conversion experience, whenever it happened, whether it was 12 years old like me or some other time in your life, whether that was a real conversion experience that you're finding out at the end, whether the conversion experience you had was a real conversion And I've heard this before from others and that's why it brought it to mind and why I'm maybe hammering this point too hard for uh, other people and maybe they're bored with this by now, but that's why it just seems so similar to Mormonism. It's just that in Mormonism, you're judging at the end of your life whether you lived your life sufficiently well or according to whatever's required. And in this other view that you're talking about, you don't judge it at the end of your life, Instead, you judge it as at the point of your conversion whether that was a real conversion. But the real conversion is based upon how you live the rest of your life. Do you see what I'm driving at? I think so.
0: I, I think I do see it. Um, I, I still see a major difference, though, because at the end at the end of the Mormon's life, if they've if they've trusted in the gospel that Mormonism preaches, uh, at the end of their life, they're hoping that what they have done is enough. Right at the end of a Christian's life, they're not hoping that what they've done is enough. What they're hoping
2: is that what Christ did is enough. What they're trusting in is that Christ did enough. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I hear what you're saying. And I think I know the answer to this last part, but I'm going to bring it up here again. So if you've got a Mormon and you've got a born again Christian, okay. And let's say they live an equivalent type of life. They're in parallel lines. They don't know each other, but they go to the Kiwanis, you know, they, they work at the library, they go to PTA, whatever it is that they do. Okay. In their lives, they live a similar and relatively high level, let's say of, uh, let's say doing beneficial things for other people. Okay. What Mormons would call good works, what the book of Mormon doesn't necessarily call good works, but what Mormons typically call good works. Okay. And so at the end of their lives though, they have done everything basically the same in their lives, except for the Mormon is thinking, okay, I'm going to be judged on what I've done. And the born again, Christian is going to be saying, okay, I'm going to be judged on what Jesus did. Right. Are you with me so far? Yes. Yes. And then that the judgment day now these two people who've lived the same type of life as far as their conduct goes, but with a different belief in their head and perhaps a different conversion experience for the born-again Christian versus the Mormon. Now, based upon that, the Mormon goes to hell and the born-again Christian goes to heaven, right? I'm with you. It just doesn't strike me as fair. Does fairness play in this anywhere? What What strikes you as unfair? That people have lived their lives exactly the same way. Uh, as far as a high level of righteousness trying to do good trying to do what they think is right right trying to believe what trying to do what they believe is correct believing god the way they believe in god and at the end it's like hey sorry it doesn't make any difference what you do it's what you believe or how you conceive of me and so based on that now you know you uh paul you get to go to heaven uh forever to sing with the heavenly choirs and have it really good and you president nelson You have to go to hell to be tormented forever.
0: I see what you're saying. I I would argue that maybe they're not living their lives exactly the same, though, in terms of their their will and their purpose for doing the things that they do,
2: Mm -hmm. I think is important to to the equation here. Yeah. Um, And that all gets into your mind, doesn't it? Yeah. The intent. Yep. The intent is what it all comes down to. I think so. I think so. And I
0: I think the New Testament Testament goes there. No, I, I think the New Testament goes there when it talks about repentance being a change of mind. Right. We often think of repentance as, as being, you know, oh, I'm sorry. Right. And you are sorry, but it's a change of mind with regards to uh, your actions and your will and the reasons why you do things. Mm-hmm. Matt, did you want to throw in on this?
1: Sure. Yeah. Sorry about that. Uh, yeah. Like I was saying I had to move my car because there's no way to park from nine to 3 PM at different parts in the streets, they sweep them. So <laughs> I apologize for <to> that. <laughs> gonna, go ahead and move it. Cause it was either, it was either going to get towed before or towed now. So, <laughs> um, Well, I think we have to start with the premises that first of all, God is sovereign, as we've mentioned previously, that he has an extensive, all extensive knowledge of things past and future, and that all things are according to his plan. We also have to understand that we deserve only punishment for our sins, that none of us deserves heaven. So when we talk about fairness, when we're talking about salvation, if God were entirely fair and just, we would all go to hell because that's what we deserve. And so we have to really, truly understand this. And this is contradictory to... How about if God were Defters just nice? It.
2: How about if God were just nice? Is well, God, God is,
1: nice at all? God is loving and merciful, but he's also just. Yeah, I'm not
2: hearing that loving and mercy coming through strong and clear on this.
1: So if we look we look in scripture, we see all throughout scripture that God has a very high standard, a, high, a very, very high standard. And like you said, we can't live up to it. When we see uh, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu they were consecrated as priests and they were obedient to what God had commanded. But the one thing they did wrong was they offered strange fire on the altar. And because of this, God consumed. Them. So if we look at it from our perspective, that was the sound
2: that, effect of the flames coming out of the temple <laughs> and consuming them for offering the strange fire on the altar, whatever the hell the strange fire means.
1: Right. Yeah. Um. So from our perspective, yeah, that seems pretty mean, but this is God demonstrating. He is entirely, sorry, I think this is a passing.
2: Oh, it's, Okay. I can't hear them. Can you hear those okay. Paul? No, I don't hear anything. Okay.
1: Okay, cool. Um, my mic is, is cardioid, so it kind of filters it out, but okay. I just want to make sure. So anyway, um, so, but from God's perspective, he's trying to show us that his law is perfect and we cannot transgress that law. Now what happened with his next two sons, they, I, I believe that the story goes that they were supposed to eat an offering according to what God had commanded, but they did not do that. And so Aaron, already having lost two sons, he pleaded for mercy and he spoke to Moses and he pleaded for mercy that his other two sons wouldn't be consumed uh, like his previous two sons were. And God showed mercy on them. So this mercy is not something that we deserve. It's not something that we earn. It's something that God gives of his own free choice. So when we talk about salvation, the same is with us. We can go through Romans. You can go through chapter 9 of Romans. This is a Calvinist favorite passage. But basically, Paul is comparing the two sons, um, Jacob and Esau. So, we know from scripture that Jacob, of his own actions, he was not a great guy. He stole his brother's birthright by pretending to be him.
2: Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated.
1: Correct. And Paul goes through this and says that it is not of anything that they did themselves. But before either of the twins were born, God chose Jacob for his blessing and not Esau. And so, we see that God has the ultimate and total sovereignty for his covenant blessings and also for salvation. So, for us, it looks like from our perspective that it's not fair that God extends his saving grace to some and not everyone. But we have to remember that none of us deserve salvation. If we got what was fair to us, we would all be sent to hell. And we have to really understand and believe that in order to understand what grace is, I think. Truly I,
2: understand grace. Can I ask you a follow-up question, Matt? And I apologize here. Sure. Okay. God's in charge of everything. He's sovereign, right? Mm-hmm. Why didn't he just set up so the default position was everybody goes to heaven? It, sound, it sounds like he's being controlled by this system, that the default position is everybody goes to hell when he could have just as easily done it the other way. Right. I mean, he could have done it the other way. Couldn't he?
1: If, if he had chosen to, he could have saved everyone. But I think, um, and the reform commentators speak of when we look at the garden, we see Adam speaking with God walking with God in the garden. We see God as creator, but because of the fall, which was also part of God's plan because of the fall, we now get to know God as the Redeemer. So if God just saved everybody, we wouldn't truly know the justice and the holiness of God. But because God saves some and and chooses to pass over others, we know God is both Redeemer, Savior, and merciful God, but also as the just and holy judge. And he does all this for his glory. It's, it's not something that, that we can demand of God. It's
2: something that he gives freely. Okay. Well, I think you've done a great job expressing your views, and I'm not going to sit here and— uh, debate with you any further i'm sorry i'm not trying to be antagonistic maybe that's part of my natural man the antagonistic radio free mormon um but that's great okay so were there were there i know we're running short of time now and that's largely my fault uh were there any other questions that you wanted to follow up on maybe we can just um oh hey you had mentioned this you had mentioned this uh moroni chapter 10 verse 32 Mm mm-hmm You can read that. You know, it's funny because if you read that as your typical LDS person, then when it talks about denying yourself of all ungodliness, you naturally read that as keeping all the commandments of the LDS church, right? Mm -hmm. Just like in, uh, what is it? um, Mosiah 3, is it 19? About um, the natural man is an enemy God and will be forever and ever unless he yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit and putteth off the natural man. And when Mormons read that, they hear, Put off the natural man means following all the commandments of the LDS church, right? It becomes something that's required of them to do. And yet when you read the same passage from Moroni 1032, from the other perspective, right, looking at the grace of Christ and the power of God and salvation and not what we do, then other elements of that same passage leap out. It says, yea, come into Christ, this is Moroni 1032 for those of you following along at home, yea, come into Christ and be perfected in him. Right, so the question now is, what do what what do we have to do to be perfected in? What does that mean, right? And deny yourselves of all ungodliness. Now we've talked about how the natural knee jerk for the Mormon is to say that means follow all the commandments of God, but it doesn't say that. Okay, it doesn't say that's what it means. But it goes on, and if ye shall deny yourselves of all ungodliness, whatever that means, right now, okay, and love God with all your might, mind, and strength, then is His grace sufficient for you? And this is important. I think I thought about this overnight before this. um, This interview, that by his grace, ye may be perfected in Christ. Now, wait a second. It just used the same expression. Did you note that? The first part says, yea, come into Christ and be perfected in him. And then it goes on and it says that by his grace, ye may be perfect in Christ. See, that's how it is that we're perfect in Christ, is by his grace. And then it goes on and finishes and it says, and if by the grace of God, ye are perfect in Christ, ye can in no wise deny the power of God. See, it's the power of God, the grace of Christ that saves us. Nowhere in there does it talk about what we do or that we have to follow commandments in order to be saved. Indeed, to the extent that we're following commandments to be saved, according to the Book of Mormon, then that's detracting from the grace of God and the power of God. Yeah, and I would
0: Agreed. agree. I would agree that that alternate reading is there. Um, I would ask you, do you think that? The default reading for Latter-day Saints when they come to that passage and they see where it says, you know, you must deny yourself of all all ungodliness. And they freight that passage with keep all of the LDS commandments. Do you think that, that that comes from trying to integrate in the teachings of, say, the Doctrine and Covenants?
2: Oh, I think it definitely has to do with integrating the current teachings of the church. And the Doctrine and Covenants does go on. There is an evolution that goes on. And basically what's going on here is in the Book of Mormon. Let me back up for a second. There's two main uh, paradigms, one of which is uh, more on grace, okay, and more on the person's relationship, the individual's relationship with God and the grace of God in being saved. Now, that cuts out the church as an institution, okay? When you have that kind of paradigm, the power of the church as an institution that can administer or withhold saving ordinances through the power of the priesthood Is diminished. So, this idea of the salvation by grace is taught in the Book of Mormon is sort of toward one end of the spectrum. At the other end of the spectrum, though, is the church, which ends up being organized after the Book of Mormon comes forward and then all these revelations received and all of these uh, priesthood offices and different priesthoods themselves are instituted within the LDS church. So, over time, the LDS church now becomes an institution that is a formal institution that claims to be able to give saving ordinances to its members, right? to the extent that it does that it is now evolving away from whether it's up or down that's personal opinion but it's definitely different and evolving away from what we have in the book of mormon where salvation is not administered through a church or through priesthood or through priesthood offices and ordinances instead it is directly between the individual and god but allowing salvation to be between an individual and god removes the authority of an institution like a church over the members and it removes their power to get the members to do what it is they want the members to do. Okay. thank you for that. I, I uh, want to thank you, R.F.M., for taking the
0: time to to talk with us. And I, I, I think I hear you saying that you you definitely see an evolution from the Book of Mormon to the Doctrine and Covenants. Maybe maybe we can just touch on my last question if you've got a few minutes to go go through that. Sure. Okay. So the last question is: Do you think do you think the differences between the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants? in this regard, have any implications
2: for the question of Book of Mormon authorship? Well, you know, i if you're talking about Book of Mormon authorship in terms of it being what it historically presents itself as being, i.e. written by Jews a long time ago that made their way from Jerusalem over to America, is that what you mean?
0: No, I mean, uh, whether, whether they're the distinctions between what's taught in the Book of Mormon and what's taught in the Doctrine and Covenants, which which we know most of the Doctrine and Covenants came from, from the mind of Joseph Smith. It's claimed that the Book of Mormon came from God via translation, uh, via the power of God from the plates, right? It's supposed mm-hmm. to be the ancient writings of of prophets on the Americas. But when you see those differences, and they they do seem to me to be stark differences in doctrine, stark differences in in gospel as we've touched on today. Um, It makes you wonder when you're thinking about how, okay, if the Book of Mormon isn't ancient, how did it come about? Do the differences in doctrines that you see in the sections of the Doctrine and Covenants coming straight from Joseph Smith, um, do those indicate that perhaps there's another answer for authorship of the Book of Mormon other than then maybe, it, you know, if you're just looking at it solely from a humanistic perspective, then maybe it was just a, you know, Joseph Smith as sole author versus others contributing. So that's, that's kind of the question I'm asking is, do you think that the differences in doctrine between the doctrine of covenants and the book of Mormon demonstrate that there may be others who contributed to the book of Mormon?
2: You know, I don't see it really as bearing on the issue because I see this looking at it from a naturalistic perspective, like you encourage me to do. I see the book of Mormon, first off, it's very early on. It's one of the very first things, of course, that Joseph Smith produces or that comes through him. And so the Book of Mormon ends up reflecting largely the methodism and the camp revival meetings of Joseph Smith's day and of course he was associated with the Methodist Church in his youth. So this is something that uh has been commented on before when we read the sermons in the Book of Mormon they sound like Methodist sermons when we see people being slain in the spirit in the Book of Mormon it sounds like what's happening at camp revival meetings. And indeed all the arguments that are had between the good guys and the bad guys about doctrinal issues in the Book of Mormon end up reflecting the actual religious arguments that were happening between the different churches in Joseph Smith's day and in his neighborhood. So like Alexander Campbell says, the Book of Mormon uh, resolves all the Christian disputes of the day, ironically enough, even in a book that's supposed to be thousands of years old. Um, Okay. So having said that much, it comes very early on. It comes before a church is organized it may come before you know it may come before even joseph smith uh, thought of organizing a church that much is not clear but he does organize the church and now that he's got a church now he's got to start finding ways to exert influence over his members and i don't mean that in necessarily a sinister way okay but if you've got a church You have to have some structure or organization. You can't just have everybody believing what they want. Otherwise, it's not really a church at all. You have to have some kind of power structure, some kind of organized system within the church. And Joseph Smith continues to do that over the rest of his life, both in the structure and also through the revelations that he receives. So what I see is the Book of Mormon, which talks about churches within it, right? But they're not churches like the LDS Church becomes. They are very, very loose associations and basically they're, they're brotherhoods and sisterhoods of people who have been born again. Okay, And other than that, there's really not a whole lot of doctrinal or um, theological or priesthood or uh, structures that, that have to be recognized and obeyed there are not church leaders in the Book of Mormon who have to be obeyed, okay, and that you have to do what they tell you to do. It's much more individual. Now, I've been talking about this for quite a while, so let me just put it this way. I think that the whole system is consistent with Joseph Smith starting out with this idea of not a structured religion. Because he's talking about the Book of Mormon. He's dictating a system in the Book of Mormon, which is like the Methodism of his day. Then he creates a church. And then over time, now he has to start finding ways to structure that church and organize that church. And so as far as the authorship goes, it seems consistent to me that it is consistent with one author, i.e. Joseph Smith, evolving over time, pre-church and post-organization of the church. In fact, I know that um, there is one... Passage, and I think it's in Doctrine and Covenants section ten. Is that true? Uh, it's one where it talks about that all those who repent and come to me are my church. Do you know what I'm talking about at all? Mm-hmm. I've heard it quoted, Maybe it's not ten. Maybe, it, but it's an early passage in the Doctrine and Covenants, and I can't find it right now. But I hear it quoted by some people uh, in favor of the fact that you know, all you have to do is repent and come unto. Christ to be members of his church. You don't have to be baptized formally, right, into the LDS church. And I understand what they're saying, but the fact is that as I see it, that passage from the Doctrine and Covenants was received. Also, before the church was organized, it did not contemplate the organization and the formal structure of the LDS church when it was received. And therefore, that idea falls more in line with the doctrine I see in the Book of Mormon as opposed to the doctrine of the church after it was organized. Interesting. So, okay, so what I'm hearing you say
0: is that you you definitely see an evolution, but that you see it as consistent with a sole author, with Joseph Smith as sole author and evolving in his views. Um, and evolving as a necessity as he builds a church.
2: Yeah, there's so much that is in the LDS Church and the revelations afterward that does not appear in the Book of Mormon, and in fact, a lot that actually contradicts what's in the Book of Mormon. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So, I
0: I asked that question because I, I when I left the LDS Church, the um, the church that I started attending. Uh, I didn't know it at the time, but it had its roots in the American Restoration Movement, which is the Alexander Campbell Restoration Movement that kind of plays into early Mormonism as well via conversions from that movement of Sidney Rigdon and Parley P. Pratt uh, and others. Um, And there's just some things in the Book of Mormon that are very consistent. And, you know, others have noted this as well, very consistent with Campbellite teachings, um, which, which leads me to be somewhat lean somewhat in the, in the direction of, of maybe the, the, the Spalding Rigdon approach to how the book of Mormon came to be uh, because so much of, of Rigdon's Campbellism finds itself in the book of Mormon. And one of the other things that I, that I note is that, um, you know, you have like Jacob is, I I forget which chapter, chapter it is in Jacob that talks about uh, polygamy. Um, But yeah, I think it was, you're right. It's two. So, you know, the book of Mormon, decries polygamy in Jacob chapter two. And yet that's something that Joseph Smith went on to be very heavily involved in, uh, as you've covered on, on, on podcasts with, with Jonathan Streeter. Um, And, and then you have like the original section 101 from the 1835 doctrine and covenants that was removed, which was a statement on marriage uh, that, you know, a man should have one wife um, in the church of church of Christ of Latter-day saints as it's termed there. um, And that, that, that section was was kind of presented to a church conference while Joseph Smith was away preaching in Michigan um, by Oliver Cowdery and WW w. Feltz. And so it's kind of interesting that, that you see, I, I don't know, I, th- I think it's possible also to see um, maybe a small group of, co- of uh, collaborators on the Book of Mormon. And, and also later on, you see some of that same group uh, trying to influence control on where Joseph Smith is trying to take take the church and what he's doing with with his polygamy. So
2: just something interesting I note. No, very interesting. Yes, I agree with you. There's so much that's so interesting about Mormonism, and I'm so glad I've had this opportunity to talk with you and to find out that even that there are worlds within worlds and worlds beyond worlds, and that there is a world of people who used to be members of the church, and maybe some still are, who also now are born-again Christians, and that they feel they were led to that through the Book of Mormon itself. That's what I find really, really fascinating.
1: Yeah, it's yeah. too bad that uh, Michael couldn't be here because he's hes like the, the de facto member of our group who's really
2: gone into the depth on the... Yeah. Michael, I'm sorry that you couldn't <laughs> be here. I accept full responsibility. And uh, I hope that uh, you enjoy listening to it just the same. Thank you, both of you, Matt and Paul, for joining me today for this interesting discussion. I wish you both the very best in your respective paths. And by the way, once again, the name of the podcast is Outer Brightness. Give it a listen. Thank you. Uh, hey, and definitely, you know, thank you for for allowing us to come on and, and
0: having this conversation with us. Um, we we appreciate the fact that you you know you put to us some tough questions. I think turnabout is fair play in that regard. <laughs> and um,
2: <laughs> I'm sorry, they they were just I would, I had not planned that honestly. No, it started
0: coming to me as we were talking. It really is fine. You know, the the three of us as we've done the podcast and 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 talked with each other. You know, we find we don't agree on everything, and 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 that's okay. You know, we 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 rest in in the fact that we're Christian brothers, and we we offer each other grace and. And, you know, we appreciate the fact that, you know, it's, it's, it can be difficult at times to, and that's part of the impetus for our podcast is that a lot of times, you know, if, if, if somebody's LDS and they want to maintain faith in Christ, they, they don't necessarily trust evangelical Christians because of the, the back and forth that has existed historically between the yes. two groups. And so, yeah. um, you know, we wanted to be a, a safe place for people to, to come and listen and, and hear people who don't agree on everything. Uh, talk with one another in a, in a graceful and, and respectful way. And so we appreciate that we had that opportunity to, with you today.
2: Hey, you're welcome. And thank you so much.
1: No, thank you very much for having us. I appreciate it. And I wasn't afraid of those hard punching questions. I, th- I hope I, I hope I answered them sufficiently and I wasn't trying to waffle at all. You know, it's sometimes okay. sometimes guys, the answers I, have to I, be
2: nuanced. I know that these are issues that you already have encountered and that you've resolved in some way or other. And I was basically mm-hmm. just trying to find out how you thought about them. That's great. Well, I appreciate the question. Thank you for having us. Guys, thank you so much.
1: We thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. We'd like to hear from you. You're invited to visit the Outer Brightness Podcast page on Facebook. Feel free to send a message there with comments or suggestions by clicking send a message at the top of the page. And we would appreciate it if you give the page a like. We also have an Outer Brightness Podcast group on Facebook where you can join and interact with us and others as we discuss the podcast, past episodes, suggestions for future episodes, etc. We would love to hear from you and hope to speak with you soon. Stay bright, Fireflies. You can subscribe to the Outer Brightness Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Google Play, CastBox, Podbean, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you like what you hear, give us a rating or review wherever you listen.
0: Thank you, Fireflies. You can also connect with Michael the Ex-Mormon Apologist at FromWaterToWine.org, where he blogs, and sometimes Paul and Matthew do as well.
1: Music for the Outer Brightness podcast is graciously provided by the talented Brianna Flournoy and by Adams Road. Learn more about Adams Road at www.adamsroadministry.com.
3: In the past, I believed in my own righteousness. And hope that I was worthy of the blood that Jesus shed But now I know that all the works I did were meaningless Compared with Jesus' lonely death on the cross where He bore sin And now I have the righteousness that is by faith in Jesus That stood opposed and nailed it there for me. And through the cross, he put to death hostility and in his body reconciled us to God and brought us peace. And I am crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. of the cross. Some demand a sign and some seek to be wise. But we preach Christ crucified. Crucified. A stumbling block was sung the foolishness of God. But wiser than the wisest men the power of the cross. May I never boast except of our Lord, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world, so I take up my cross.